You put, put a live round in that gun. Oh, well, yeah, there was like an 8% chance. Eight percent. Wasn't it just 8? 8? Yeah. Who taught you math? more. I don't know. from the sublime to the suspicious as always i'm lindsay wilkins and this week it's all about the wrong man who has the spectacular dialogue it's a double feature of shane black's kiss kiss bang bang and alfred hitchcock's north by northwest um and here to help me figure out the exact plot of each movie um is a great twitter mate and a great leather boxer i think that is the actual uh, official term of that it's preston mitchell hey how's it going it's going well uh, this afternoon. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Um, no, I've, um, I, yeah, I get to pod, I love recording. I love uh, pod, podcasting. It's kind of like the favorite thing that starts my day. So um, yeah, I'm going great. And thank you so much for coming on and with this double, because I got to watch two amazing movies again. So um, it's always a pleasure when I get to hang out with um, Kiss Kisses, Robert Downey Jr. and um, Anytime with Kerry Grant. <laughs> <laughs> No, definitely, definitely. Uh, thank you again for uh, having me here. Um, I'm excited to wax positive about two of, of really my favorite movies ever. Um, I have a lot of them, but um, these two especially are very, very important to me for very specific reasons. And uh, I think, um, and we'll get into this, but they pair together very well. They did. Um, when you sort of suggested it, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, that is actually going to work really well. And I thought it was just going to be the sort of the wrong man um, uh, identity kind of mix up which is both but then you actually watch them and you realize how the plot works how the dialogue is um I mean both very different kinds of dialogue but very very both sharp and completely witty and you're just kind of giggling along with everything as you're watching it and um no this is going to be an amazing amazing double and um with this is well not quite December but when this comes up it will be December so it's going to fit the festive mood because this is a Shane Black movie and it's going to get Christmassy <laughs> Definitely, you know, he's he's definitely a fan of Christmas for sure. And uh, I, that's Christmas. one of the things I love most about him. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's just like it gives it, his movies an extra kind of thing, like even something that doesn't need it, like The Last Boy Scout or um, even The Nice Guys, which is my probably my favorite Shane Black, just that, that, spoiler alert, um, is ends at Christmas. Doesn't need to, but is there. And it just you're like, yeah, it's Shane Black and Christmas. Yay. <laughs> Which is interesting, and and we'll kind of I think again we'll get into this like with with the more we talk about Kiss Kiss, but like the Nice Guys is kind of a a greatest hits kind of it really uh, is a combination of everything Shane Black does. So it really is. I didn't know I didn't really nail down on it until I watched Kiss Kiss. Went oh no, this is what Nice Guys is, but mm-hmm. just with Ryan Gosling and um being amazing but it's kind of yeah you're absolutely right about that um but before we get into this amazing double um just because this, this is your first time on the show I just wanted to uh ask you what have you 
as any movie fan, you have too many favorite movies. I'm the same. Um, but what are a few of your favorite movies, the ones that you keep going back to? I definitely, um, so my favorite movie of all time um, is The Matrix. Um, I think uh, it, it's, it's, it came out when I was uh, five. I mm. saw it on TV about a year or so later. Um, it was one of those movies. It was big for my brother's generation because uh, he was in high school at the time. So that that movie definitely, I was like, wow. Like even when I was a kid, uh, I was like, wow, a movie can do that. You know, mm-hmm. um, like the the whole put upon, um, as you can see from this double, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the put upon kind of hero um, having to discover <laughs> more things about himself. But nice. um, yeah, definitely that one. Um, and uh, Ocean's Eleven is like my, comfort movie it's it's uh like uh, I, I love um all three of the the uh the Soderbergh films but that first one especially um the, um and then uh also uh, I'm a big fan of Once Upon Once Upon Time in the West um oh, yes <laughs> uh, I've seen that I've seen that movie like so many times uh even though it's literally three hours long mm. it's uh uh, the other Jimmy Stewart, um, um, uh, Henry Fonda being a bad guy, yes, and so much brutality and so much like uh, emotional scarcity. But for yeah. some reason, I return to that movie a lot. And then I love a lot of like crime noir type stuff. Like I love, uh, um, I love like Jackie Brown. Um, I love. I'm a big fan of The Iron Giant. Um, that was like my favorite movie um, yeah. when I was super young. In fact, it still is one of my favorites. And yeah. I would say those are some of like my absolute favorites. No, some of the coolest movies ever made. I mean, I still remember when The Matrix came out and I, for some reason, had seen the trailer and just what was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't know. Oh, I actually don't think I'd even seen the trailer because if I'd seen a trailer, I would have seen Trinity doing the leg thing um, and would have been absolutely my mind blown. Um, but it's, yeah, I just remember a friend coming, were t- telling us about because she'd gone and seen it. Goes, you won't look at an F plus machine um, attack, when you can tap your card or credit card machine the same way. It's just I'm like, what? Um, and then <laughs> we went and saw it, and we just went, oh, because you won't look at a credit card machine the same way. Everything's connected. Um, it just that, that was the only way she could explain it. Um, and yeah, it just. Yeah, and uh, God, Ocean's Eleven, I think, is one of the coolest movies ever made. I mean, just the way it moves, the music. I mean, Soderbergh is just like going, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm cool. You, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you are. I mean, that whole scene when the building's being demolished and everyone's looking behind except George Clooney, it's just, I'm like, yeah, this is one of the smoothest yeah. things I've, <laughs> I've seen in a movie. It's just it's just glorious. And, yeah, that opening, uh, yeah, those are, you just watch those movies and you're like, yeah, they're just cool they just do everything yeah they do everything and it's kind of why you love going to the movies essentially <laughs> definitely definitely and I think those are the types of movies that uh really get me excited um hmm. about film like uh like um as much as I um you know I love like uh, a lot of hideous stuff um like I love Jim Jarmusch um yes. yeah. I, I love I love a lot of um I love a lot of Robert Altman films mm. uh, and and, and filmmakers like those, but um, I would say for whatever reason, and maybe it's that kind of turn of the millennium, those two films specifically that we, we we're talking about, um, that's what really gets me excited about film. Like anytime guys like Edgar Wright or Ryan Johnson make a movie, like I'm like, okay, I'm in. I don't even care what this movie's about, I'm in. And if it can give me that fun of, of an Oceans movie where, um, Rusty and Danny go back and forth, and then uh, 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 Rusty looks at Danny and says, "Well, the team beat thing was harsh." 
Um, we just see Brad Pitt eat on screen for some reason. It's the best thing. <laughs> profusely, right? Yeah. Yes, no, I don't know it's, why. It's, no, it's such a it's such a thing, yeah. uh, and I think it really speaks to the other side of film that a lot of cinephiles we don't we don't really talk about that as much. It's like the whole value of a fun, flighty, uh, fluffy adventure, especially when it's made by a master. Um, you know, as we're as we'll get into today, um, because literally we're talking about two of my other favorite movies here. Like, if I were to do a top five right now, like these two movies would be in there, and. Um, yeah, I'm just happy to to um, to talk about two films that are representative of what I think a lot of you know cinephiles can kind of like undervalue a bit, which is the quote unquote fun film, uh, the popcorn film, and that kind of thing. Yes, and I think you've got two chosen two directors who do that kind of popcorn film really, really well. I mean, Shane Black as well is um, is amazing, um, but when you get into Alfred Hitchcock and what he essentially turned the popcorn movie into um is even just yeah this is an amazing double for that kind of uh for that kind of reason um and yeah so I'm just getting too excited to get into kiss kiss bang because I'm, I'm already I'm my brain is already going who taught you math um so um we will now we're going to get into it um okay so we're sitting down in the theater curtains are opening as usual and preston what would be the first trailer you would show for kiss kiss bang bang the first trailer i would show would be in a lonely place with or without his wife or tailing me i've been looking for someone for a long time i didn't know her name or where she lived i'd never seen her before and a girl was killed and because of that i found what I was looking for. First, you have to have enough imagination to visualize the crime. You're driving up the canyon. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person. Go ahead, go ahead, bruv. Squeeze harder. Yes! I love this movie I, I so love, much. I, likewise, likewise. Um, no, I, I love this movie quite a bit. Um, I discovered it, um, I discovered it, like, goodness, I must have been in high school because I went through a big film noir phase. Yeah. Um, it was around that time that I actually came across Kiss Kiss, but one of the things that, one of my mom's big obsessions was Humphrey Bogart. And mm. um, so I remember I had come through, because at the time, um, Casablanca was like one of my top three movies. It still is one of my favorite movies. In fact, I'm kind of kicking myself for not mentioning that earlier. Um, um, well, it's it's kind of like almost a given with with movie fans. It's like, yeah, you like Casablanca, yeah, I like Casablanca. It's amazing because it's yeah, Casablanca. No, it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's a staple for good reason because yeah. it's such it's such a good movie. Um, and then of course, like I fell into a lot of his other classics. But I arrived in a lonely place, and I think. Times have definitely changed for that movie now because at the time when I was in high school, a lot of people didn't talk about it as much. I think a lot of like film noir historians, um, if you read a lot of books on film noir, they talked about this movie. They kept bringing up Nicholas Ray, mm. who I definitely wasn't as familiar with as I am now. Um, and I just, I remember renting from a video store and I just fell head over heels for it. So much so when Criterion, when they announced uh, the Blu-ray, um, uh, uh, several years later, I was in college at the time, and I just bought it. Um, a broke college kid buying Blu-rays, but that, that was me. Um, and uh, introduced it to a few friends that way. And 
um, I think it ties really well with this movie because um, it's about it's a film noir, um, but it's it's kind of the inverse of the investigating uh, type of thing where the investigation is there, but it's not really at the fore. Mm. And you're mainly following this writer who uh, is played exceptionally, in my opinion, by Bogart. Um, one, literally of the most, mm. one of the best and literally like you, you have the most hyper masculine man to ever man at the time. Uh, yeah. playing this writer which writing is not exactly coming from a writer I don't want to insult other other male writers out there it's not the most uh, masculine Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson would like a word with you right now <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness yeah I, I don't want to spar, spar with the, the goat um, no no <laughs> <laughs> but, but truly it, it's it's a fascinating performance because he has so much pain and he mm. expresses it with such brutality and it comes across with his romance uh, with Gloria Graham and uh, one of her her most iconic roles, and it's this really uh, stellar melodrama that that digs into the loneliness that you'd see in a L.A. mystery, and and it's about entertainment, and and so uh, that's what really kind of connects with me about about that, and I think it makes for great connective tissue with a movie like. Uh, like his it, it really really does it's kind of it's a oh god it's amazing because essentially it is about this toxic abusive relationship and whether mm-hmm. you can trust the person you're with which is why i love this movie and i think it's one of humphrey bogart's best performances which is saying a lot because that man gave a lot of great performances but it just his his sadness and his anger and his kind of um his his kind of He's, he's such a macho uh, masculine person, but at the same time, it's so fragile. And yes. it all depends on what Gloria Graham is kind of thinking of him in that particular moment. And the whole thing when they're in the car and they're just saying, yeah, um, I was born when she, I met her. I think I was born when I met her. I, I lived when she loved me. I died when she left me. And oh, it's such yeah. a romantic line, but at the same time, it is so sinister because it's just is. And especially when you're sort of saying to that person who's kind of wondering if she's going to break up with you. And it's like, Oh no. Um, <laughs> she's kind of thinking, should, should we be walking out the door? But no, those two performances are amazing. I love this movie. I only saw it for the first time last year because I realized it wasn't a, uh, there was a, it was a couple of hundred uh, Bogarts I still haven't seen and I'm trying to watch them all. And then went, Oh, I should be watching more Nicholas Ray movies and kind of went on a bit of a yes. kick with him. And he's just, I mean, the man can do a sad emotion like no one's business where you're just watching a movie devastated and feeling for these characters, these very complex characters. Um, even Humphrey Bogart, who every single part of me wants to go, no, I do not want to feel sorry for you at all. But at the same time, I'm like, I want to give you a hug. You need a hug. Um, you need a hug right now. Yes. Um, and same with Gloria Graham. Um, so no, this is the perfect, perfect trailer. I love this movie to death. I mean, oh my God, that is absolutely perfect. Uh, opening trailer and then my uh, trailer is going to go in a complete it's going to bring the whole tone down um <laughs> no my first trailer I'm actually not going to go for a noir but I decided to go for something else it's top secret from 1984 Val Kilmer look I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know. It It all sounds like some bad movie. 
Um, yes. <laughs> Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is hilarious and it's got some really dopey gags in it that I love. And this is, well, top secret because it's a Zucker Abrams joint. And my partner's favorite actor is Val Kilmer, which is how I got introduced wow. into this movie. It's like, you haven't seen this movie. This is how I realized that Sean Black is Shane, who Shane Black actually was and his legacy in, in movies. And, um, and I just wanted to show something of... Well, there's a lot of movies you could show with um, Val Kimmel being awesome, but I just wanted to show him at his funniest, and that is for me top top secret. I mean, the the the, the, the freaking railway gag, <laughs> it's amazing. It's, oh goodness, it's Mel Brooks. <laughs> it's it's total it's total Brooks, and and it's so indicative of that uh, that like style and that era of comedy filmmaking. No, yeah. I, I love this movie. It, it's uh, a movie my high school buddies and I we talked about a lot um, because uh, we had. Each of us had uh, close relatives who put us onto it, and at the time, and and uh, I still think it's one of the, the, for me, it's one of the top five funniest films ever made. And Val Kilmer is so flawlessly like great in it. It's it's a great kind of a spoof of the World War II spy movie, and like it's making fun of like the Elvis mantle yes. uh, in cinema as well, and which Val Kilmer just throws himself into. No, Val Kilmer in the eighties and nineties. Um, even though Kiss Kiss is early 2000s, but him in the 80s and the 90s, he was, he was, he was on one. He was definitely just, just a machine with the, with the performances. And the gag that gets me in top secret, every time I think about it is the, uh, goodness, well, there's two. I always think about uh, the glasses one. Because is that, <laughs> yes. is that Peter, is that Peter Cushing or is that guy who looks like Peter Cushing? It's been a, it's been a long time since I've seen yeah, it. No, the cast of this is amazing because I was just, I watched the trailer and I remember a few gags and then I just saw Peter Cushing is in the, in the cast list. I'm like, shit, yes, yeah, glasses gag. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that glasses gag cracks me up and as does the, the crazy underwater sequence, which oh. is hilarious, but it's also funny because of the crap that went into it. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, like again, I, I just I, I I love Top Secret so much. I love that you picked that. I think that's a wow. That that's I can't even argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the thing is, what the, the Abrams and Zucker brothers would go for just to do one joke. The set pieces they do. I mean, Mal, I was, I, Mal Brooks is one of my favorites, but he would always be a line or just a small gag. I mean, but the effort and money these guys actually put into just for one gag is. It's so brilliant and perfect. I love it. And yes, so this is going to, that was going to be uh, my first trailer and I'm going to have to probably watch uh, the all of Top Secret because like, I haven't seen it in a few years. I'm going to have to watch that movie again. Um, what is your second trailer <laughs> for Kiss Kiss? <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, my my second trailer, um, I'm going to go with a movie I've mentioned in passing today and that's The Long Goodbye. There's a long goodbye. Your name Marlo? No, my name is Sidney uh, Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Here's Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. Right profile. Sit down. Sit down. To come her way. There's gonna be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't and, kill and her. He couldn't I'll tell you kill something else. It's a minor crime, a minor crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello. Yes. 
<laughs> so this is a movie that, again, was another part of my kind of noir phase in, mm-hmm. in, uh, as a teen. Mm-hmm. And um, I arrived to it, um, I'm not sure, I'm actually not sure how, I think it was on Netflix at the time. And uh, I kind of, after watching a lot of movies from like the 50s, so like The Lonely Places and in, in, uh, Asphalt Jungles and movies like that, I, I segued into like more 70s noir. So yeah. by that point, I had seen Chinatown, which was uh, one of my dad's favorite films um and movies like that and the long goodbye uh is really cool because um it's taking um you know uh, we're, we're gonna be talking about raymond chandler i think uh quite a bit in this quite half a bit. yes episode. we are yep and and you know the long goodbye was one of his uh books uh from philip marlowe who originated in the, in the big sleep and mm-hmm. um the movie uh got lambasted at the time uh for being a very loose adaptation of the book which it is very um, loose yeah i think they even changed very, the ending which i actually like the ending in the movie more than the book i do too yeah oh wow uh, this is why we're friends uh lindsay uh because <laughs> i'm right there with you i, I yes. think i think that ending is so is so dark and yeah. satisfying uh in, in a simultaneous way and the whole movie's like that i think um there's so much upon rewatches that you pick up on and i think the brilliant thing that robert altman um who i who, I, who i've already said is uh has become, become a favorite director of mm. mine the thing that he kind of brings to the table in this movie the most is that that narration that 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 is so much of the the voice of the Marlowe books he makes that mumbling uh yes, a mumbling aspect yes. of, of Elliot Gould's portrayal in this movie mm. and all of the the throwaway uh, he he kind of he interprets narration from a book there the movie doesn't have narration and he interprets that as 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 Marlowe's throwaway dialogue mm, yes. and so the way he kind of talks to his cat and the way that he goes through the uh the way that goes to the grocery store and the way he kind of mutters uh clues to himself like as he just kind of literally falls into this very 70s anachronistic atmosphere uh only anachronistic because uh marlo is very the way the movie treats him he treats him as kind of a relic of another time mm, yes um, and that's kind of what i love most about it is that um the ways that it plays around with source material but still in my opinion captures the essence of what makes a great mystery film and, and what makes marlo such a fascinating uh hero that you just want to or anti-hero uh, no matter how you want to put it that you just want to fall, uh, follow and, and really love, you know? Yeah, and what I kind of love about it is that the updated, which we'll get into Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and how it updates kind of this um, kind of noir kind of, especially uh, that author kind of blanking on the friggin' name you just mentioned three seconds ago, and I've read a lot of his books. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> it's kind of this, uh, how he updates LA. And time you get into the 70s, it's a very different beast to what um, the 1930s, 1940s were but it's kind of the same meandering wandering around not totally sure what's kind of happening and he kind of updates that into this kind of very shaggy very kind of dark 1970s kind of thing I mean the whole thing when he's with the gangster and they're just sort of talking about something and all of a sudden he smashes a bottle into his girlfriend's face it is just this dark shocking kind of moment but it kind of brings back those kind of elements of what you love about those books um and then but also kind of having Arnold Schwarzenegger weirdly in the corner but having this kind of very shuffly <laughs> rumpled kind of mumbly man and that was not kind of Philip Marlowe Mar- Philip Marlowe was much sharper much on the ball he knew exactly what to say he was always the yeah. guy that you kind of knew kind of knew what was happening before you did it was always this kind of quick game of oh qu- catch up with with Marlowe and um 
you think of Marlowe as a as a Bogart or a Robert Mitchum. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Really cool. Whenever you read Marlowe, and I think that's what that that yeah. that's what the movie kind of uh, again that's it's it's not a it's not a, as as a lot of classic films are uh, from that time in the eighties, especially like uh, they're not necessarily great adaptations of their books. But damn, are they great films? They're great um, films, and they really kind of want to nail into what the LA ness of it is. And this is kind of yes. it's it's films like The Long Goodbye, it's films like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, um, and a few other ones that have really kind of um, that's what I think LA is for better or for worse. I, I think I said to you off mic. I've been there once when I was like sixteen, and I was just like, "There's so many highways, I don't understand." Um, <laughs> and it's kind of this um, thing. But when I actually think of LA, I think of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think of The Long Goodbye. I think because the trailer I nearly chose, which I'm kind of glad I'm not choosing it now because you did choose uh, Long Goodbye, is The Big Lebowski. Which that opening scene of the, of the supermarket is oh, totally yeah. riffing on The Long Goodbye with Ellie Gould trying to buy cat food and oh yeah but the but the dude has no idea what's happening he's just like i just want to hang out and live in la and you're making me do shit which is actually kind of similar <laughs> to um robert downey jr in this movie in that movie so it's kind of um no this is an amazing movie and it's kind of one of the great it's one of my favorite altmans i think i keep trying to be cool and choose like a different one but i think no i think i keep going back to the long goodbye because it's a freaking great movie and i love how he just meanders along it's just this great kind of you just hang it. It's a great hangout movie, actually. Yes. Oh, it's it's totally a hangout movie for sure. Yeah. And uh, and you brought up Big Lebowski, and that's something uh, that that was definitely the era I think where the Coen brothers were definitely um, they're very hyper aware of of their they've always been hyper aware of their influences, but they were really making movies at the time um, that was riffing on the stuff oh. they were clearly loving, like Miller's Crossing. And yes. Where they though uh, Oh Brother Arthur, I think was right after Lebowski, which is totally a Preston Sturgis yeah, Stooges film. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. When I sort of read an interview of after watching, which blew my mind back when I was saw it of uh, Brother Arthur, I went read interviews. Oh no, we, we didn't. Oh, it wasn't really because I was like, oh my god, they're doing the Odyssey. This is amazing. And then you read an interview. It's like, nah, we actually wanted to make a Preston Sturges movie. And I'm like, who's Preston Sturges? Go watch Sullivan's Travels. Oh, okay. <laughs> I understand. Um, I've done all yes. my movie things backwards. That's a problem growing up in the in the, in the 90s. You watched all these things that were ahead to go back and go, oh, this is what this actually is. Um, so yeah, but it's just this kind of cool mix. I think that this is the perfect, perfect trailer. Um, again, I'm bringing the tone down with my second one. Only because this is a movie when I first watched, I hated, and then I've just grown to love it just because of the pure insanity. And it's got an amazing filmmaker making it and does it well, but it's Reindeer Gaines from 2000. Here's a guy they say is a criminal, but he's not. When I get back in that room, you better be wearing nothing but a candy cane. Welcome home, convict. Hey, sis. But between them and happiness. What do you want from me? I read your letters, convict. He knows you worked at that casino. Stands a team of criminals who wanted to take down the state's richest casino. This is my luck. Finally meet a boy that I'm crazy about, and uh, my brother wants him worse than I do. You want to hear about some job of mine? I want some hot chocolate and some pecan pie. Let's start talking. I can really go for some onion rings. <laughs> what started out as love. Do you remember all those letters you wrote me about me and you against the whole world? We can have it all if you just give him what he wants. Could end up in murder. What did you think's gonna happen? Uh, look, not a perfect movie, but it's John Frankenheimer, and it is essentially about a guy who is getting out of prison, Ben Affleck, and he pretends to be his 
jail uh, cell roommate so he can date Charlize Theron. But Charlize has a problem and now Ben Affleck has to dress up as Santa and steal money from a casino that is run by Dennis Farina. Um, I mean, the cast wow. is amazing. It's, it has got so many twists and turns that you're just kind of like going, what? And it's such a dumb premise, but at the same time, because you have John Frankenheimer who knows what he's doing and you have the cast that this movie does, it kind of elevates it in a strange way. Yes, the twists are dumb. Like when you actually get to the final ones, you're like going, how does that actually work? Um, but at the same time, it's not a movie you need to actually think about because it will fall away like dust. But I think it's really fun. It's got people dressing up as Santa, robbing a casino. It's got Dennis Farina, who I love. It's just, yeah, it's a really, really fun um, movie. And it's a great mis- uh, mistaken identity, wrong man kind of movie. Um, but it's, I have really grown to love this movie over the years. It's kind of becoming a weird Christmas staple for me, um, purely because oh, you're wow. just watching it going, this movie's ridiculous, but I'm having a blast with it. <laughs> I love that. Um, I especially love that because, well, for, first off, I, I haven't seen Raider, Reindeer Games. I, I need to, because I, I really do love Frankenheimer. There's, mm. there's goodness. There's still several major ones I need to check out, but everything I've seen of this, I've really enjoyed. And, uh, and yeah, uh, Ranger Games, like just that premise you described is super odd because I, I I never know what the movie was actually about. Mm-hmm. I knew that it had Ben Affleck and Charlie Theron because I saw the DVD plastered at like video stores um, for a really long time. Yep. Um, Big uh, explosion in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And uh, but I love Frankenheimer. I did not know uh, Dennis Farina was in the movie, so that mm-hmm. that really perks my ears up. Uh, yeah, no, I I I love Farina. I'm so I'm so sad he's gone because he uh. he just elevated every movie he was in. Um, I always think about uh, the bit in Snatch where he's just like, uh, yeah, Britain, UK, Mary fucking Poppins. Uh, uh. <laughs> do, you have anything to, do you have anything to clear? Yeah, don't go to Britain. Oh, don't go to London. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll definitely, this is on my list for sure. Yeah, um, Garrison East is unfortunately mis- very miscast in this, but it's got your yeah, Danny Trejo, Isaac Hayes. I mean, the cast is amazing because this is Frankenheim and everyone wanted to work with him. And mm. um it wasn't his last movie. It was his last movie. Um, I think he went out with a bang. Other people at the time were like, this is not very good. And then I was like that. Then I watched it. Like, actually, if you watch this movie, it's batshit crazy, but it's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got to sort of take it in that you're going to have fun with it. But some of those camera moves when he's actually, oh, I mean, to, I haven't seen all of Frank and I, because to be fair, the man made 100 movies. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's. I would say this is definitely worth a watch. It's really, really fun. And that is kind of going to be the perfect tone to get in. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister... Honey, Are you going to help me? I got to check my schedule. Can you help me, Harry? Because you're not going to help me okay, find somebody okay. else. So sometimes I have other, oh, uh, my caseload oh, is, sure. is pretty. Thank you. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad right. to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. 
the definition of the word idiot. One of the, again, Shane Black. So it's one of the most quotable movies. Um, now you have said this is one of your favorite uh, movies. Do you remember when you actually first around the time you first watched it? Definitely. So um, it, it, it it so a bit of the. So I've talked already a lot about like that noir phase I was in in high school. And to be fair, I don't think I actually grew out of it because because <laughs> yeah, you? You know, we're, we, yeah, yeah, we we talked about a bunch of you know noir detective stuff uh, already. Hmm. But um, I remember um, back in my hometown, uh, we had uh, this video store. Unfortunately, it's not around anymore. It got replaced by a furniture store. Hmm. Um, and uh, so that, so kids out there, uh, remember we had video stores back then? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I say that every day. Remember video stores? <laughs> yeah, right. It's 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 crazy. Mm. But um, but no, I was in high school, and I remember going through um, uh, uh the the shelves of and what was available at the time. Uh, because I, I, I already rented like stuff like you know in a lonely place and movies like that. And mm. I asked um a clerk who knew me well because she always saw me coming in just buying up DVDs or and renting them. And she was like, have you seen this movie called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? And it must have been about five or six years since the movie came out. It came out in 2005. And I was like, no. And um, I only, um, what, what really got me to see it was that I had grown up, you know, with the Lethal Weapon films, uh, big movies in my household. And um, it said on the, on the DVD cover from the creator of Lethal Weapon. So I, I, I basically bit a bullet and I, I, I remember blind buying it at the time. and took it home and watched it and um you know like Robert Downey Jr. was already Iron Man and of course I was a big fa fan of him and Iron Man mm. and, um of course loved him in Tropic Thunder and uh very you know uh, for, for my generation a very respected actor especially in these days but back then it was still that weird you know kind of period where you know Tony Stark was kind of our introduction to him and yes. so and Sherlock Holmes to, a, to an extent and um Literally, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the dialogue, um, the characters, the way the movie looked and was shot. I actually didn't know until like years later that it was uh, Shane Black's directorial debut because so much of the movie just operates on pure craft, uh, which I know we'll get into um, mm. throughout this episode. But um, I, to this day, I mean, a lot of movies from my high school years, I mean, keep in mind, when I was in high school, I loved Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> you know, and a lot of movies from my high school years, I, I have not held up for me. And, and, you know, I mean, that movie definitely didn't hold up then, but, but um, Kiss Kiss oh, no, Bang I Bang. Think, I think Mark, Mark Warner would definitely try and defend still that movie. Uh, actually, no, he probably couldn't. He'd probably go, I still like it. I realize everything you're going to say is correct, but screw it. I still like it. So you still have, so Mark Warner will have your back. So I think I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> Oh goodness, that that's so funny. <laughs> but no, I I it it really does uh, tie together like kind of like my loves of like detective fiction with my loves of action movies, and um, I love I love uh, comedy when it's thoughtful and when it's um, really like full of uh, full of layers, which this yeah. movie has that in spades. And uh, especially the older I've gotten and the more experiences that I've had, I've come back to it at different points in my um of my life and uh it, it means a lot more more to me now and it's just a movie that I, I'll, that's always going to put a smile on my face uh, yeah this is a christmas staple in my house as i've mentioned before val kilmer's my partner's favorite movie his favorite movies do have val kilmer in them um and 
I think we were just maybe I think it was Netflix like years and years ago, sort of um, 10 years ago. And again, he'd already been Iron Man and um, he goes, oh, we should watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I'm like, what is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? And he goes, look at me, he goes, you haven't seen this movie? I'm like, I don't know what it is. Um, and then he just pressed play and then I kind of went, oh, this is amazing. I mean, yeah, the dialogue and the fact that I kept going, Dad, Dad, it's Philip Marlowe. It's based on Philip Marlowe. And he's like, who's Philip Marlowe? And I had to go, oh my God. Okay, do I need do I need you to get to read books now? Um, and so we kind of had this, because I knew instantly it's kind of, oh, it's kind of this uh, almost satire, but kind of reverence. It's a noir movie. It's doing all these things. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it. So yeah, every couple of Christmases, we will both sit down and just watch this movie again and just happily um, quote this thing as we're, as we're watching it. Um, but yeah, it comes in a really fascinating point in Downey's career because this is his last comeback. This is an actor who's had many, many comebacks. And I sort of, growing up in the 90s, it was always fun of like, oh, yay, Robert Downey Jr. is in something. That means he's doing well because you'd always get these stories of him with his black tie heroin and and kind of yeah. not doing well and having to get fired of projects because he was um taking too to well he was on heroin um and mm -hmm. so every time he showed up in something it was always this kind of oh yes he's he's he must be doing well and then he'd fall off um so when iron man when he was an iron man it was just kind of this like oh that's a gamble to put him in a big superhero movie but okay um and the fact that he still kept going and is still doing well and i think this was um because I don't think the studios wanted wanted him. They were like, oh, no, we're not having Rob Downey Jr. in this movie. And they had to sort of fight wow. for him. And just because the insurance would have been too high. So it's kind of this amazing kind of thing of, no, I'm back and I'm good. And because he's always been great. So it was kind of this. The, and, of course, this led him. He's always worked with interesting filmmakers. He too. really like, has. Kind of yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that's something in going back. Because this movie made me go back to watch like quite a bit of Downey Jr., um, like, uh, that's when I saw like movies like Lex and Zero and, and, um, um, I mean, just recently, I mean, this wasn't back then, but I, I literally just a few weeks ago, I saw Shortcuts for the first time, which is another Altman. Um, yes. and, and he's, he's great in that. Um, he really is. I haven't seen that movie in ages, but I remember him being really, really good. And it's, so it was kind of nice to see him sort of on fire. And then just the banter he has with Val Kilmer is just amazing um just the way they can play off each other um and because I know because I know he when um Velcom actually sort of Velcom was such an interesting person he could be a complete asshole one minute and then the most generous loving person in the next I mean he stopped drinking on the shoot um as in so because he knew Downey wow. was in recovery so he um was you know trying not to do anything i don't even know it's not like he drinks on set so it's just this kind of solidarity thing like no nah, i'm not gonna drink either and it's like I love you, yet I've heard you can be an absolute asshole on set. So, um, but I, <laughs> I am always gonna think you're amazing. Um, but well, yeah. that's what's that's yeah. what's cool about their their pairing together, especially mm. being on a Shane Black movie. Because, yeah, like uh, we've all heard the stories about Val Kilmer over the years, especially those of us, you know, you and I both like we're we're clearly both fans of Kilmer, uh, mm. especially when he's on. When he's on, he's on, <sighs> and especially during that '80s '90s. Mm period and um of course again kiss kiss bang bang was shortly after that that period um but it, it took i think so much of why this movie works and what fuels its genius is that it's all of these artists in front of behind the camera kind of swinging for the fences because at the time again shane black this was his first movie that he directed yes. he had cut his teeth as a screenwriter um 
in the late 80s, <clears throat> in the early 90s, of course, like he sold um, his script for Lethal Weapon uh, when he was, uh, I believe, 25. Um, sometime too much around money. That age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much money, right? To, just, to, yeah, yeah. yeah, the amount you're like, you don't give twenty five year old that much money. <laughs> seriously, seriously, and and of course he ended up, you know, kind of reinvigorating a mold, and and you know, movies have ripped ripped off Lethal Weapon so much since. <clears throat> and oh. I think, and and I think so much of uh, because, um, yeah, like he sold uh, uh, the I read that he sold the Long Kiss Goodnight for about four million dollars, which bombed at the box office. Critics yes. hated that. Um, uh, which, uh, in case people don't know, Long Kiss Goodnight, like, he, he wrote this movie and, and Rennie Harlan directed it. Uh, please watch it because it's actually really, really awesome. <laughs> it really, really well, is. I, like, I have friends yeah. who don't know who Shane Black is or know who I think, but as soon as they go, oh, yeah, no, he did, uh, like, uh, Last Boy Scout. He did Lethal Weapon. He did, and they're, like, looking at me and I go, oh, he did Long Kiss Goodnight. Like, I love that movie. <laughs> so it's, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> again, yeah, it's, it's Christmas staple. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, great. Another great Christmas movie. <clears throat> and and um, the, the Academy, uh, like the Academy uh, for Arts and Sciences rejected his application twice to be on the Academy uh, because because of that, uh, partially and and I didn't read this, but I want to say it was because of that long kiss goodnight reputation. Um, and of course, uh, Last Boy Scout, which came out before that, didn't mm. connect with people at the time. And so um, really so like he yeah so weird and he wanted to write this rom-com uh kind of in the vein of James L. Brooks like mm. an as good as it gets kind of thing and it was actually James L. Brooks who told him hey why don't you put you know uh why don't you make this about murder and, and that kind of thing and he was just like "Ooh, I can make this another you know noir story and mm. and literally that's how Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was born uh was 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 that and so to have these artists come together at the time in their careers, I mean, it's just insane to me um, that that well, it's not insane because as we already discussed, Shane Black is awesome. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think it was part of that. Like, hey, I get to make the movie that I want to make, which we don't really get with with A-list actors as much anymore. Nope. Um, kind of makes this movie uh, as magical as it is. Yeah, I mean he changed how action movies worked. I mean, uh, Lethal Weapon came out a year before Die Hard, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. And so I think he definitely changed the way action movies, this kind of 80s infused kind of, I mean, um, I mean, even James Bond tried to make a kind of a Lethal Weapon-esque Shane Black in License to Kill. License to Kill, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) we're we're James Bond movie. So I'm on a James Bond kick at the moment. So that might, that's still going to come up again. Um, And it's kind of this thing. So you can't help notice, but every single time he writes a movie, he gets more noir. I mean, it sort of starts off with Last Boy Scout. Then it sort of goes really, even though um, The Long Kiss Goodnight is much more spy action, kind of Rennie Harlan extravaganza. It is much mm-hmm. more about mistaken identity or amnesia, and it's got these very specific noir traits. Then he, of course, um, and then, yeah, and then, he, of course, the first movie he makes is Pure Chandler. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's because that's, I mean, he wanted to make a rom-com, and I do like the central relationship between um, Downey Jr. and Michelle Monaghan, um, just because wow. I think she's smarter than he is, and she knows it, and she's the one who kind of drives everything. Um, and it's... <laughs> It's just this kind of great kind of thing. So that's kind of where his mind goes. That's where it instantly goes. I mean, my favorite Shane Black is definitely more than nice guys, but watching Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I realized how much 
of the nice guys is Shane Black's best of, which I'm fine with because I love the Shane Black best of. And I think Ryan Gosling um, and it might be Russell Crowe's one of his best performances are just um, going for gold in that movie. And even though it has, but you watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and you realize, oh, this is almost the nice guys. Uh, this is uh, nice guys is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang Redux. Um, they're just too <laughs> similar in tone and everything else. Um, and that movie bombed. I mean, the poor guy keeps having yeah. um, these movies that just don't connect. And then within, I know, Nice Guys happened really quickly because I went and saw that. I mean, oh, this is one of the best movies of the year. And then all of a sudden now it's kind of getting these kind of cult statuses. So he can never, yeah. I, he goes, can we just go back to Lethal Weapon where you paid me like $3 million for a script or something? Um, well, it's or- interesting. It, yeah. it's interesting to bring that up because uh because whenever i think about his career which i think about a lot because i'm i'm kind of obsessed mm. <laughs> <Hello. laughs> um um it's like every other movie of his is a, is a it's like yeah every every second movie he directs is uh, a, a franchise movie that yes. doesn't fully connect with people um and then he uses the clout from said studio movie to make the movies that are clearly passion projects and i say this as someone who uh, personally, <clears throat> here come the tomatoes. I, I I enjoy all four of the movies he's directed to varying degrees. I'm yeah. completely with you on the Nice Guys. I think it's it's one of the best movies of the last ten years. It's it's definitely one of the most entertaining, um, for sure. Hmm. And um, and uh, I, I love Iron Man three. Um, like totally. I, oh, I, think, I do as well. <laughs> yeah, another another great Christmas movie. And um, I, I think it. I, I I've argued ever since it came out uh, against so many dissenters that it's it's I still stand by even after Endgame that it is the very very best Tony Stark in any of the the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe films. I would um, agree with I, that. I, yes, I, I love that so much. And and yeah and yeah, I just think he yeah he he's he really is a, a kind of a poor soul in that he he's making he kind of. How can I put this? He he makes these really uh, genius uh, films, and he understands action screenwriting arguably better than um, a lot of his contemporaries. Mm, yes. um, and, and yet, you know, they come so packed with these ideas and these damaged characters that people, for some reason, just don't uh, fully connect with either, whether it's upon first viewing or studios don't, don't know how to market it market that because i remember when nice guys came out because much like you i saw that opening weekend and mm. the advertisements were like from the director of iron man 3 and it's, it's just like okay this is clearly black using his studio clout to get oh. to make another another kiss kiss and i loved it for that and i still love that movie uh but yeah like it bombing especially with the leads that it has it's just insane and, it's, and yeah it's so weird because i'm just like guys this is like the funniest movie of the year i mean it's got genuine jokes in it you do not get these kind of comedies anymore and you're not going to see it come on um no it's kind of like yeah I mean I really love Iron Man 3 as well and I know a lot of the criticisms was he's not in the suit enough I'm like that's kind of what I want I want Tony Stark having to take all his toys away so he has to actually go to sneak into some boy's um garage and actually um <laughs> oh god that is the relationship with the kid I mean yes I mean this he will always have a precocious kid and kiss kiss bang bang is one of the few I think his only movie that doesn't have the precocious kid um, but the cool thing about that though um and and yeah. again, sorry to cut you off again because again you're hitting all these ideas i, I just I, I love about black um the thing about iron man 3 in relation to kiss kiss bang bang especially 
is that um, you're right. Kiss Kiss is the only movie that doesn't feature a kid character except for the beginning. The beginning. Yes, he's talking where, to his niece. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's talking to his niece, but also um, the, the actual star of the movie that begins with the flashbacks when uh, Harry and Harmony are children. Yes. And, uh, and I think that's what drives Harry throughout the film. Harry being Robert Downey Jr.'s character is that uh, he's kind of what saves his damaged self is that innocence that he's kind of been holding on to, the innocence of, I want to I want to be with, you know, my, you know, I've, I've come out in LA, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've managed to skirt past, past some criminal, like uh, some police hmm. activity being thrown to jail. And I've gotten lucky. Let's, let's, you know, let's look for, you know, th- this girl who, you know, who kind of got, you know, abused with the, the other shitheads of LA. Yes. And it happens to be, and when he f- finds out that that's his, literally his childhood sweetheart, excuse me, his childhood sweetheart, then that really that innocence i think is what drives him throughout the movie because kiss kiss doesn't doesn't have really any at all uh uh really nice characters like it's not literally it's not the nice guys like it's very it's really his his um i say this gingerly but his respect quote unquote for harmony um and his respect that he shows in different ways for uh uh, a few of the women throughout the movie that mm. really, I think, makes you glomp onto him as a character. Um, and uh, whereas in Shane Black's other movies, it's that precocious kid who drives the damaged protagonist along. Um, and I think part of the reason why he didn't have a kid character um, as a as, as a character for this one um, is because it's such a satire of L.A. It's such a satire of what Hollywood does to talent and women especially. Yes. That... Um, that uh, that uh, that a child character wouldn't fit into the picture, but I think Shane Black kind of kind of skirts that through that and kind of kind of squeezes that kid character by making Harry in touch with his inner child. So, I, and I've always found that interesting about this movie. Yeah, after you said that, I kind of realized this is kind of a wanting to go home movie, but knowing that you can't. I mean, they do eventually go back to uh, their home hometown for the for the funeral, mm-hmm. but it's. Um, because it's sort of that that bookends the movie, but it's kind of this thing of Harry, who is damaged goods. I mean, he's just as damaged as everyone else. I mean, he's not, he's and he's still an asshole as much as everyone else. But he kind of has this <laughs> desire to want to be good and want to go home. And so when he sees Harmony again, it's kind of like, um, oh, you, I remember the good times. And she's like, they were not good times. They were shit times. What are you talking about? And it's kind of like this, yeah. I, it's the idea of wanting to go home, not the actual wanting to go home. Because no, I'm glad that a kid is not in, in Kiss Kiss because this is, is probably his most nihilistic, most dark kind of, because this is kind of him going, oh, almost, I love Hollywood, but I hate Hollywood. Um, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know anything else because I've been doing this since I was 25. I've been throwing these parties because that first party is actually at his house um you know, the, wow. I, yeah it's it, oh my gosh Shane Black loves a, loves a Hollywood party I, that's what I love about this movie is like what kind of <laughs> weird Hollywood party am I walking into um and I believe that he's been to all of them so I don't think they're, they're that's not I don't think those parties are an ex- complete exaggeration um but it's kind of this the bit, um the bit yeah. at the mansion where uh, Downey says uh 
yeah, this is the type of place where you'll run into uh, a woman named Jill who spelled uh, J-Y-L-L-E or some bullshit. I, I just, <laughs> yeah, I thought I that so. was so, that is so apt. Uh, yeah. Seriously, so apt. Yeah, um, but yeah, and it, but is this the cynical movie where you feel like Shane Black's almost had enough? Like he's writing this movie, he wants to make it fun and actiony, but at the same time it's like, oh God, I hate this industry. But I love this industry because it will mm-hmm. just spit you out. And kind of what I love the, the connective tissue between each kind of the movies is that how, bureaucratic they are in a weird way um with north by northwest being sort of how spycraft kind of works or doesn't work and how kiss kiss bang bang how kind of the industry works behind the scenes and how they will use abuse you spit you out that just much like your hometown does so it's not that different but at the same time it's like they have the fixes you have the guy to teach you how to be a police officer they go out and just find talent so they can get colin farrell to lower his price it's kind of all these little insider things that I kind of kind of love and everyone is awful um I mean even um Val even character, says he's not a, yeah I'm not a good guy not, yeah I'm not a nice guy yeah, yeah and, and he's kind of the one that has the kind of the most offensive language in it which I kind of love because this is the first gay character in an action movie I think it is I can't think of yes. it like openly gay I'm thinking, and I think Valkuma kind of goes a little bit, leans on a touch too much with his speech patterns, but you can tell he's just trying a few different things. And I love gay Perry. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm not gay. I'm just, I'm knee deep in pussy. Um, and, <laughs> and it's, but he's kind of the one that throws it at people. Like he's kind of already knows that this town is homophobic. He's, he's never going to get to above a certain station because he's open. Um, so he's just going to constantly throw the fact that he is very open. This is gay. I'm New Yorker. Yeah. I'm at people. And the fact that it makes everyone else in the movie so uncomfortable is kind of amazing. And I love it. Um, especially the henchman, uh, Mr. Fire, Mr. Frying Pan. Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's such bond names. I'm just like bond is all over this, this, um, this thing. And it's kind of, but it's great and it's amazing his performance is the way he leads into it is actually really great even though he's the one who's throwing the stuff out to people and same with michelle monaghan um oh except for oh, the yeah. speech of um which is actually my favorite bit of dialogue in the movie is when um robert downey jr's just had enough and he's just sort of saying all the women here are weird and you're all damaged goods um it's like they shook the country and all the normal women hang on and all the other people went to a woman went to la and every woman's just glaring at him in the room going you shit um and um and that's kind of what i yeah i love about it everyone who does that gets their shit thrown back at them which is kind of what i really love about this movie and why i just keep laughing at it every single time i watch it well that's that's the interesting thing i think about this movie and shane black in particular one of the many interesting things about his career is that he he makes these movies where all of the people in power are all terrible damaged people mm. um and they hold the power and mm. and and harry is a great audience surrogate for us in this film because you're seeing la through the eyes of shane black someone who clearly loves it loves it enough to to construct an entire movie around one of the most romanticized uh genres dealing with los angeles film yes. noir yes um and- while also making a movie about the industry that kind of kind of fucked him up uh for for quite some time especially in that period of his life oh yeah and um with and then uh you know while the while the people in power um are also shitty like i mean so are the the underlings the people who 
um, are, you know, people who are broke, people who, you know, are just making it by the skin of their teeth. Mm. But those are, but that's where the real, uh, where the real uh, moralism of his movies comes from. Um, as I said earlier, like, even though Harry says that, that bit uh, uh, where, um, that you just talked about, where, you know, America, uh, it's like, it's like so-and-so grabbed America by the East Coast and shook all the, and the normal girls hung on, mm. you know, that's a, that's a really great line, but you know, several scenes before that, you know, he, once he sees the, um, the, the woman, the, the dead body without underwear, um, after they j- dig her out of the water, like he's, he's very quick to pull the dress, you know, over, yes. you know, her private part. He's yes. very, he's very, um, it, it, it's one of it, his, it's his anal retentiveness, but he's very quick to the spider you know off of uh harmony's harmony's bosom <laughs> that's and a great he, bit it's a spider she touched my he, boob it's like that yeah. should not be your response <laughs> but that but that's just it like i feel like um harry is in a way it's shane black even though shane black makes these movies about these really damaged misfits um you know a damaged misfit who's broke or or just a, a complete asshole pairing them with an even tougher asshole um, you know, like, I feel like Harry really is Shane Black and, and kind of how he's like watching LA from a kid's perspective, literally, like yes. how he, he romanticizes his past with Harmony, um, how she's like, you know, because something else I wanted to bring up too in, in talking about LA or this movie's LA is kind of what they do to actresses um, because oh, yeah. there's that uh, great scene when he first meets the adult Harmony in the bar uh, fantastic lighting, by the way. I love the way that scene's lit. Yes. Um, I think Michael, I think Michael Barrett, um, did a great job with the cinematography of this movie. Mm. Um, where you know she's like, okay, okay, this woman is is thirty five, still trying to make it as an actress. Uh, you missed it, baby. You know, and thirty five is so important because she later says, um, um, you know, I'm thirty four. I'm just a baby, and and yes. I, I I've always found that funny. But in doing research for this, I found out that. No, 34 is the line of demarcation kind of unofficially for actresses in Hollywood where after that, like you get start, you, you start, they, they, they're put into TV roles and like mom roles yes. and like they start being pigeonholed. And I, I just find that so ugly. And Shane Black being someone who, you know, I mean, he gave us one of the, the great action movie heroines with uh, Gina Davis in Long Kiss Goodnight. yes. And, and then the nice guys, like literally the, I would argue that um, uh, Gosling's daughter in that movie is the most competent and moral in that, in that whole movie. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. She is fearless. I mean, the fact that she sneaks into her father's boot or trunk um, to go to a Hollywood party. And then she, as soon as, um, oh, look, there's like hookers and stuff. And he's like, no, just say there is hookers. Do not say and stuff. And then she repeats the line about anal sex. I mean, she is fearless in that movie. And as soon as she finds out that Russell Crowe is like, um, I guess a, a, a shady, no, he's not a hitman, but he'll beat people up for money. Um, mm-hmm. She instantly goes, can I hire you? Because I need you to beat up that person over there. I mean, yeah, she is. <laughs> and he does write, he does write really great female characters. I mean, I love the scene at the bar with Michelle Monaghan when you can tell she recognizes him. And then she just proceeds to screw with him. And it's this kind of amazing um, kind of thing of like, yeah, you see that person over there. She's too old. But yeah, it's 34 is that kind of when a, you're not the ingenue anymore. And it sucks um, because you're either have this amazing career when you're an older woman, when you're 50s, 60s, or when you're young. And when you're in that kind of middle, mid 30s to nearly 50s, 
you're the mum character or you're not getting work. And yeah, he gave Gina Davis one of the great action female roles. Um, Michelle Monaghan is kind of the smartest. Uh, actually, no, Gay uh, Perry is really, I keep, so I've got to stop calling him Gay Perry. That's his nickname. It's just Perry. Um, it's kind of, um, he's smart. He just doesn't care enough. She actually cares because her sister is involved. She never saved her. And I love how when you sort of mentioned that, yeah, we'll go back to the line, but the ship the country from the East Coast, LA is somewhere you escape to. It's always been that. You go to LA. Um, it's a lonely place, literally. Yeah, it's know? a lonely it's, place. It's, yeah. It's, you, it's a, the, the, the LA of this movie is where all these lonely people who have been hurt by their dads, like, you know, Harry's dad was an alcoholic, Perry's dad would beat him, and mm. Harmony's father, again, you uh, she's involved in mystery because her sister's involved who was abused by their dad. Yes. So much so to where the Johnny Gosper actor, um, her sister takes to as a father figure and even mistakes as her dad. Yes. Um, which, of course, leads to her um, unfortunate demise, which kicks this mystery off, but yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, no, definitely, it's, it's, yeah, sorry, no, I, I didn't mean to, to kind of steal your ball there, but I just had to, had to inject there. Oh, no, please do, because I completely agree, it is, yeah, it's a place you escape to, and her sister did the exact same thing, and I think that's kind of how LA has always been seen, it's kind of the place, and I mean, it's not, I mean, LA is huge, and it's got people who were born there, grew up there, and all that kind of thing, um mm -hmm. but it's a kind of a place that you want to get a you want to go to to get away from something else and unfortunately really it is LA is the same as everywhere else I mean you were saying that you lived in um, Los Angeles for a year I did um so shortly after I graduated college um I uh I I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life uh, much like the characters in this movie yes. when you meet them uh, <laughs> at the start of this movie. Um, so I, I, uh, I joined a volunteer program. I flew to Los Angeles, um, you know, met a lot of really interesting, uh, adventurous people. And, uh, basically I was, I was doing reforestation, um, oh, wow. uh, in the, in the mountains of Yosemite, uh, yeah. for a bit of that. I did some, oh. I took some school children, uh, for the most part and, and did several other nonprofit things, but that was the big one. Mm. And uh, I have family in Los Angeles and uh, I've always had family in Los Angeles. This is my first time being out there. And so yeah. I took a Christmas out there. So literally I had a Shane Black Christmas <laughs> um, shortly after my, my college days. And yeah. uh, it was eye-opening because um, I, <laughs> you know, upon hearing like just how, you know, I'm over here thinking, okay, LA is literally La La Land. Like it's going to be glamorous and magical and and Gosling's gonna float in the air of Emma Stone and all this you know crazy stuff yeah uh but um there's a lot and you do get a bit of that majesty from like um several of the landmarks but a lot of LA is like any other city like yeah. it, it has homeless problems it has um a, a huge enclave of talent that is attracted to LA but they're also attracted to in, in a perverse First way, the struggle of LA and yes. having to make a living out there in such a, a, a wildly populated, you know, city. And yes. this movie definitely hit different whenever I rewatched it uh, once I moved back to Texas. And um, because I finally, it was like I finally figured out like what, like who Shane Black was, mm. as opposed to what the Shane Black movies I always watched and loved, what those just were. Because that was after, because I, I lived in LA shortly after seeing The Nice Guys and, uh, and I, and I, that was when I literally, much like you instantly, I was like, literally guys, this is the funniest thing ever. You've got to, or one of the funniest things of the year and you've got to check this movie out. And, and yeah, and 
but no, it, it, it it's, and I think one of the reasons why um, this movie means so much to me, um, uh, I guess what attracts me to it, despite having such <laughs> fucked up characters, um, <laughs> is, is, is that the fact that, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like all these characters, Perry, you know, Harmony, Harry, like mm. um, of the impetus for the murder, like it's all, um, these are all damaged people. Yes. And it's this guy's innocence that's driving it through this narrative. And so much so to where he's diametrically opposed with the toughest guy in the movie who happens to be the first action film's first openly gay character, which is wild to me that, that it, it took that long, but that just speaks to the And then, yes, and then certain words will still come up, all said by Val Kilmer, but I think it's kind of this way of him throwing himself at people to make them very uncomfortable because he knows he can use homophobia against people. But yeah, I mean, he's strong. I mean, I love that thing where um, he tries to take a swing at um, Perry and Perry just gets him in a headlock just instantly. He's like, no, this is not going to yeah. end well for you. Don't. I'm, I'm, I'm bitter in any way, shape, or form. Well, that's um, just it. Like, like Harry, Harry is terrible at being a tough guy. And that's yes, why I love yes. him. He, <laughs> he tries to fight. He tries to fight Perry. He gets in a headlock. Uh, he tries to fight that guy who's like making, uh, making a pass at Harmony while she's asleep. And, yes. and that, that he makes that really great speech. Uh, it will not end then, well for you. And then he's getting beaten up in the front yard. <laughs> Yeah, just, just the crappy album, which, uh, which, uh, which, uh, which later on a character in the movie uh, is is like, oh yeah, that, that guy who beat you up earlier, yeah, he's he's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> and, and he's so terrible at being a tough guy to where he's terrible at doing tough guy Marlowe esque dialogue to the point to where he has to go back and recant, recant a lot of his memories, which is yes. where the, the the brilliant chaplain-esque fourth wall breaks come in it really um, does i love how the the narration sorry it's just the narration is brilliant because it's meant to be this hard-boiled narration but robbie downey jr doesn't know how to do it properly so he keeps fucking it up and he has to go oh wait i have to go back it's like god my dad can't tell a joke i can't tell a joke so i have to go back and tell you what this thing has to do with it and it's underwhelming <laughs> um i love the fact that he's kind of complaining about oh at the end oh but i love the joke at the end when um don't you hate it in hollywood movies when um a character you think is dead but it's not he's okay and he's walking around and you see perry walk in and then it's just like oh, oh god i mean why don't we just do that for all the characters and all the characters who have died just walk into the room with abraham lincoln <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the easter bunny and yeah it is it is so ridiculous but it, it works it works because that like i remember the first time i saw that movie i was like what the hell just happened like what am i watching uh when that moment came up i was already loving the movie yeah but that that moment felt the first time I saw it as a teenager, me not being a dumb teenager at that, I was like, well, that, that felt off. What is that? And then upon so many rewatches, I, I figured out, okay, the, it's the breaking of the fourth wall that is a recurring gag in and of oh, itself. And so it the fact really that is. it just, the fact that it just goes, you know, just amok at that moment, it, it just speaks to just one, how, how brilliant Black is at, at kind of, he, I feel like he understands the rules of action filmmaking and the rules of, of uh, noir filmmaking and storytelling to the point where he knows how to break them. Because yes. uh, that moment is so perfectly played in the movie where literally the door is closed on all those you know, icons uh, and then it just resumes back to being what it is. Which is again, I think why this is such a perfect made a movie uh, because you know, on one end, it, like half of it is very much, okay, we're going to poke fun and we're going to construct 
these Chandler stories, these Chandler S stories mm. through Johnny Gossamer novels. But at the same time, we can enjoy this. We can, we can, it's okay to like this. You know, it's okay that we have a character who is very critical of, uh, who's very skeptical of, hey, this, this plot sounds like a Johnny Gossamer book. And then he gets his finger torn off and he gets beaten by all these henchmen. And then later, you know, he becomes so, he becomes even more disillusioned with the LA experience, you know, being an East Coaster and wants to just save his friends that he takes, takes up a gun and becomes that, he finally yes. becomes that tough guy hero in that moment. I at think the that end, right at the end. Yeah, he finally gets yeah. it right. Yeah, because he's he's not yeah. been doing that well beforehand. But what I love about the narration is that it kind of makes him a unreliable narrator as well, which is, again, very much part of this noir kind of thing, but it kind of plays on it because he's telling the story. And yes, he's the guy who's searching for this hope, this innocence that he's lost, that he wants to get back to that never really existed. But at the same time, he can make himself i generally think the character is more of a gentleman because he yeah every time he sees how many naked he duck he has his eyes down he tries to flick a spider off her boob and is upset when she goes oh see so you touched my boob what big deal um but it's kind of it's a fucking biggie yeah it's a fucking yeah. biggie and no that is that is a it's a it's a big deal you cannot just let these men kind of keep abusing you you need to sort of and she kind of learns that toward the end as well she's like no i need to be able to stand up for myself and not take these things as ah. Eh, it's life, it's whatever. These no, these abuses shall should not stand. But at the same time, he can kind of maneuver the story in the way that he wants to make certain people look kind of thing. And you get the sense of that, especially with that final gag with um with Abraham Lincoln. And it's kind of great and it makes the movie even smarter when you're watching it again and again and again, because you're kind of going, okay. Yeah, but the but going back to the, the Johnny Gossamer books, I love how it sets up that Harmony read them as a kid. And he's got these amazing, yes. like, sleazy 70s covers on them. And these, like, sleazy kind of, like, these um, Pulp Fiction-esque kind of paperbacks with the kind of the half-naked uh, woman, which I love. I love those covers. But at the same time, you've got the feeling that when <laughs> Harmony's reading these, this is what she wants life to be like. But she's seeing how, because in um, a lot of Chandler books, the women are either deranged infomaniacs and killers and usually all three at the same time. So you've got <laughs> this kind of thing of her reading these books of what a woman should be and that abuse is just normal and of course she's unfortunately growing up in a household where this is yeah. unfortunately normal as well. So it's kind of she screwed up from the beginning and I love her story arc of like going actually no this is fucked up and I need to deal with this and maybe Harry's right that the fact that someone fills me up at a party when I'm asleep and then someone flicks my boob when I'm asleep is not okay. Um, I, I don't think she completely learns that, but you get the sense that she's coming to a better place and accepting her sister's um, suicide and all that kind of yeah. thing. Um, but it's kind of this kind of amazing thing of how people interpret art and how people make art at the same time. And yeah. again, it comes from Shane Black sitting in a place of like, I got screwed over with um, la The Long Kiss Goodnight. I just want to make my movie. Um, yeah, I've got the cast I want. I'm making the movie that I want. And then he's sitting in the place. I love it. I hate it. I can see all the abuse. I see all the good things that I, but it gives me the things I want to do. And then that same thing happens again when he makes Predator. <laughs> I mean, he gets screwed over yeah. again. It's like, yeah. you asked Shane Black to make a Predator movie. And now you don't want a Shane Black guys <laughs> need to just accept that he's going to make a certain movie. And he made a, I do believe there's an amazing eighties action movie in that predator movie. I just think the studio took it away from him. And then we got 
that weirdly edited mess at the end. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. it keeps happening to him and he kind of knows this, but he's going to make another movie eventually. And it's, I'm kind of hoping that it's, it's either going to be another franchise movie or it's going to be this really funny noir with really good actors doing really good work. And no one is going to notice it until 10 years after it's made, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I echo your sentiments completely. I, I hope that, yeah. And, and as someone who, who, who likes that Predator movie, um, again, yeah. oh. uh, to <laughs> tomatoes, to tomatoes are our foot here. Um, I can I can just smell them. Um, no, oh, no my, my partner has the 4K downstairs of that Predator movie. He loves it. I, <laughs> I've seen that movie too many times. <laughs> oh, I love I love that. That makes yeah. me happy. Um, I, but I, I'm hoping that um, he's not too disillusioned with Hollywood. And, mm. and, and to kind of wrap this back to the beginning of his career, um, something that I think is really interesting about how the Lethal Weapon movies were is uh, after, because the first one was, the one he wrote and then yes. he had a story by credit on the second one yeah which i also it. really love mm. and the thing about um have you ever heard the original story behind that script for lethal weapon 2 by chance no i haven't it was meant so, to be, i know it was meant to be darker but then they didn't do that or something yeah so it was it was supposed to be substantially darker like he wanted to kill Riggs at the end oh um, yeah and the studio was like, yeah, no, we want sequels, dude. And so uh, they brought in another writer, I think Jeffrey Bohm, um, mm. who's credited on the, who's also credited um, as the, the, the official screenwriter for that movie, but uh, shifted the ending, ending around. Now on, on one end, I love the ending of Lethal Weapon 2. I think it's uh, one, of the, one of the most cool <laughs> 80s action climaxes ever with, with Riggs fighting the, uh, the, uh, the, the guy and the, yes. uh, you know, with all the money around and, and there's a, there's a, there's a cool revenge bit in there. And of course, you know, diplomatic immunity. I love that. Stuff, but... <laughs> Danny Glover needs to revoke more diplomatic immunity. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> facts, 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 facts. <laughs> but, but the thing about Lethal Weapon 2, um, especially with, uh, against Shaq, uh, Shane Black's other movies is that Riggs isn't damaged like he is in the first one like he in the first one Riggs is has a death wish oh, it's that yeah. will to live that he discovers through being with Murtaugh and, and hanging out with Murtaugh's mm. family that he really has an inkling that life could be worth living again and he and by the end you know he that's kind of the conclusion of his art for that movie then in Lethal Weapon 2 it's like well I'm still kooky because that's my character yes. and I have to stay in character because I'm Mel Gibson but that you don't see that damaged person again and you definitely don't see that in three and four and oh, i think no. that's something that yeah. yeah that's something that black revisits in wildly different ways in other 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 films uh you know uh hollenbeck in uh last boy scout oh you know, is, is incredibly damaged. damaged and damaged he's so absolutely damaged and that movie was meant to be a whole lot darker i mean his wife was meant to be murdered by chainsaw or something ridiculous like that and everyone's just like we need to pull it back pull it back Shane yeah. <laughs> um when I read that idea and just went yikes that's that's a whole different movie than what we got and um no he loves he loves writing damaged goods that kind of are looking for a way out but never finding it I mean that is with the long kiss good night I mean Jenna Davies forgot all her past and then when she starts to remember it she remembers the trauma but then she's got oh, I have a kid now and mm -hmm. I need to kind of get my shit together because I need to protect her. And then you've got the um, 
Samuel L. Jackson um, character, who's also kind of damaged and kind of taking scans. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind yeah. of he writes these kind of broken people who kind of find other broken people that they can be with. I mean, that's why I love the relationship between Ryan Gosling and um, Russell Crowe in The Nice Guys. They yes. are two lonely, broken people and who find each other. And Russell Crowe finds this little girl, or teen, uh, 13 year old girl, in Gosling's daughter. Um, and he's able to go, Oh, this is what it is to be innocent. This is what it is to be good. And so when she sort of says, If you kill him, I'll never speak to you again. That is a fate worse than death for him. He goes, no, I, I want to be in this kid's life. I want to be, um, I want to be a father figure, another father figure to her, because Grosling is going to fuck it up at some stage. So, so she needs someone, <laughs> um, and that's kind of what I love. And I think what I love about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, it's more about the idea of being innocent, but never coming from a place of innocence and finding that own goodness the fact that he's working with um perry at the end i love and just that interaction at the end when yes. he's trying to shut him up is just like oh they've found found each other you know harmony's still going to be there with them and they've kind of found this kind of uh de facto family that they can kind of um they've got that support network that they never thought they had um any of an apology to the midwest uh, yes dropping so many f-bombs yeah 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 um, <laughs> yeah, that is so sweet. And just the uh, what uh, Perry's just slapping the father at the end. It's just this old man broken. And he's like, don't you dare talk to me like that. I'm like, I'm going to talk to you anyway. I want you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's very nihilistic, but it's actually very poignant at the same time because it's literally about these people going, oh, the world I live in isn't great. I finally figured that out. And maybe I shouldn't accept that. Maybe I should just go find somewhere where I can actually be okay and that's kind of the sense you get the end of this movie um and it's a very nice place to end on because it is everything else is so nihilistic and so kind of bleak and desolate and i love how everyone just has nowhere to go in this movie ever <laughs> They're well, all in it speaks to two things that you've mentioned which is you know la is a place that a lot of people go to to pretend to be someone else yes um and that's what you talked about is like how they've all realized, okay, like I can be myself, you know, Harry goes to that transformation of being the person who can't finish anything to mm -hmm. finishing his arc of being, you know, kind of a private eye, which yes. he lies about before, but, but he fits that role and plays it by the end. He plays it well, yes. um, uh, presumably with, with, you know, Perry um, after, you know, their adventures end in this movie. Um, and of course, you know, Perry, Perry's the guy who literally, you know, you know, gets one over, Excuse me. gets one over um harry you know he, he he's like hey sorry i fucked you over you know yeah. like he's he's not a nice guy as he says and then harmony you know harmony tells harry um in the like you know in the middle like hey like you think i'm amazing like i'm i'm not amazing and he he reiterates to her okay well we can we can be we can be still be us like we can finish this dream that i had yeah that is quite frankly the most innocent dream of any character in the movie which is again i think why downey just soars in this role and it's ironic because this is the role that you know when favreau john favreau saw this movie he was like okay he's got to play, play iron man um and and i just think that that's such a cool tidbit about this movie and, and even downey jr has said um in years since that this is uh, his favorite of all the movies that he's been in. And I think that's really cool. No, this is why he wanted Shane Black to direct an Iron Man movie. I mean, he brought him on. It's because he, I think 
one, yeah, I think it, it's a great role. I, I love how Favreau stole this and went Iron Man because Harry's arrogance is very different from Tony Stark's arrogance. Uh, Harry's yes. arrogance is bluster. Is I mean, I love when him he's in the audition and he's doesn't know what he's been shot in the arm. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just <laughs> I, I need to pretend something quick. Whereas Tony Stark is much more. Oh, I know everything five steps ahead. Um, Harry's completely behind on the eight ball constantly. And it's this kind of, so I love the fact that Fevre saw this and went, oh, I can see him doing a thing um, and I'm going to do it. Because he's amazing as Tony Stark. I mean, oh, yeah. um, it's, it's he's absolutely amazing. Um, and he's amazing as Harry, but they're very two different characters. I mean, they're both broken, um, but in completely different ways. Um, yes, totally. And I think it just shows, I mean, Harry, I mean, uh, Downey Jr. has always been an amazing actor. I mean, you just have to watch his early work. Um, I mean, I love him as Chaplin. I mean, oh, that, yeah. he's so good in that movie and he's so good in a lot of things, which is why I said when I said when I saw him back in the day, I was like, oh, he's doing okay. He's 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 clean. He must be clean. He must be, you know, because you'd hear these horrible stories, well, him falling asleep and that'd be weird waking up to find Robert Downey Jr. in your house. Um <laughs> <laughs> which is actually why which it's funny you bring that up because that's actually why he um there's a bit in this movie where um he uh he he he, he that's why shane black wrote the scenes that he did where uh one harry finds uh the corpse in the bathroom because he was kind of making fun of he was kind of making fun of how uh of that downing story you just attested to. yeah and so again like this movie is just meta on top of meta on top of meta yeah and i I was, and it's cool that you're bringing that up because, you know, having grown up in the early 2000s, like, I didn't know that that was the expectation back then. Like, I've always grown up with people, I guess the kind of this final phase of Downey, is like to put it, where he's, he can, you know, he's, he's going to be in his golden years in another 10 or 15 years or so. And he, he's now a fully respected blockbuster actor. Yes. And whereas back in the 80s and the 90s, like, he was coming up with, like, Andrew McCarthy and you know, Kaplan and, and mm. natural born killers and all these like wild roles. Um, and so I didn't know that that would, that was the expectation back then was that he was respected uh, for his talent, but I didn't know that that people would be like, okay, like we're, we're checking for Ive Downey Jr. every time he's here. So I think yeah, it's really cool. It, it, yeah, it really was. I mean, he would take on these weird roles cause he would just suddenly pop up again and then he'd disappear for like two or three years um and then all of a sudden he'd pop up on Ellie McBeal and then unfortunately get fired from that because he just wasn't heroin's obviously very hard habit to kick um because it was so addictive so I think he just had to go through this thing and but everyone wanted to work with him and everyone wanted him it sounded from what I've read everyone wanted him to be okay because everyone thought he was just so talented which he was and he still is um and the fact that he was able to kind of go on this last kind of trajectory of going into those older years being Iron Man and um, not screwing it up and actually kind of, you know, because he met his wife on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang as well. Oh, I know he was dating. I can't remember. Something about yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. She was a producer. They worked together. They started dating. And then, so I don't exactly know what the timeline was, but it kind of, he started becoming in a really good place. And this movie constantly references him finding people in the hotel room of him falling asleep in the car and then ending up at that <laughs> pink, the, the pink girl's house, the pink wig house. Um, 
Oh, Shannon Sossaman. Yeah, yeah Shannon yeah. Sossaman. And then seeing her murdered, it's just him constantly being in places where he doesn't belong. And you're right. It feels like Shane Black's just like giving him shit. <laughs> that time he's like, guys, I did it once. <laughs> I'm sure Jim yeah, Belushi right. did it multiple, way more times than I did. Um, <laughs> and he was much more of a mess. Um, it's, yeah, but it's kind of the, the success story of, oh, you can actually, as long as you get your support system in place and, you have a good one and you're just constantly getting help and constant kind of thing. You can get something over this and then you can become Iron Man. It's kind of like a hopeful story in a way. Um, Which is why Downey got, yeah. he tapped Black to, to do the third Iron Man. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah and, and, and three is really interesting compared to the first two uh, for a lot of reasons, but especially because I think a lot of, of uh, Favreau went through a lot making Iron Man 2 you know, he wanted to do other stuff. And, and at the time, Marvel didn't quite figure out its formula yet. It had um, <laughs> It's like, you need to put it, these it, five things in here. And he's like, how? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly, exactly. And, and three, and and I mean, even at the time when I saw the movie, because again, I've always been a fan of it. Uh, when I saw Iron Man 3, like I, it was after that high of the first Avengers and, mm. um, and uh, which oh, I yeah, saw- after, yeah, it was, yeah, it was straight after the first Avengers. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was on a kind of a, a superhero high at the time, and uh, and three was refreshing even at the time because it was like, oh, this is a filmmaker being allowed to kind of play with existing toys, but still allowed to be that filmmaker. Like it was cool to see that Shane Black precocious kid. It was cool to see. In fact, what's what's cool about that movie? Well, okay. I keep saying that what's cool about this, what's cool about that. The coolest thing to me about, <laughs> about that movie is uh, how, what people hate about it is, is, is the fact that, you know, the bad guy, the Mandarin blows up his house and he's yes. forced to be out in the suit. And I think that's cool in context of Black's career because Tony Stark as an entity would be the, the bad guy in any other Shane Black movie. Oh, he he's totally rich. would be. <laughs> he's rich, he's arrogant, he's... You know he's like he's full of power. He has literal superpowers. You know yes. he, you know he has money, these resources, and by blowing all that stuff up and forcing him to be Tony Stark and prove in a world of Iron Man and a war machine and an Iron Patriot, hey, like you know it's the guy in the suit that that makes him as awesome as he is. I think that's a really beautiful message for a studio temple movie, and uh, it's why it's why I love that. It's why I love Kiss Kiss. You know the the fact that it's that drive to 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 want to do better and to follow a genuine dream as opposed to just a shitty one, you know, um, you know, the, the fact that your hero is a guy who is stealing toys for his niece, you know, his intentions are good, the act the action is not, you know, and how he ends up becoming, um, he's still operating outside the law a little bit, you know, being a private eye at the end, yes. but like he he becomes. He becomes a bit of a, a a bit of an officially officiated hero, which I I really appreciate. So yeah. no, yeah, that last action se sequence is great because yes, he's still fumbling around and everything is kind of accidental when he's hanging off the coffin of um uh um Corbin Benson's actual real daughter that he's trying to pretend is still alive. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of this great moment of he does every, he finally was able to stand up and do something kind of right. And then he realized, oh, mm -hmm. I kind of like being the hero. So I'm going to stay in LA, work for Perry, and we're going to have a great uh, friendship, be best buds. And then um, it's kind of, 
yeah, it's it, it's um, this kind of magical kind of thing of like, oh no, this is how I got here, and now I'm great. <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 amazing. And Perry's like going, no, you're not. Come on, calm down. Um, <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's kind of this great, it's a, it's a great redemptive story. And I think Iron Man 3 does a very similar thing. I mean, he, you don't, even I think Marvel up to that point did not show their superheroes as vulnerable. And I think the fact that you got to see um, Tony Stark, even though I know in the comics, he's more of an alcoholic, but this is Disney. So he's, yeah. the fact that you saw him have PTSD and um, the fact that what he went through actually caused some shit and it actually kind of broke him in a way and he has to rebuild his life i mean he's having um issues with pepper because he can't communicate anymore so all he can be is in the robot and to take it strip away it's kind of like this cool kind of thing of no you actually have to build yourself up from thing and i know um and it's kind of a great story arc um which marsh in uh Gosling's character in the nice guys is exactly that you know exactly he, that he, yeah he moonlights as this like perfectly smart you know charming you know handsome private eye but he's an alcoholic fuck up which his yes. daughter calls him out on time constantly and, time again. <laughs> and to the point to what that was what was ruined ruined his marriage and you know having her grow up in that you know it, it really disaffects with her dad and, yeah. and i think i think it's it's again it's just shane black i feel i feel like he does he does the he, he does the fool really well and it's i mean if i'm gonna talk a little bit about my you know my kind of <laughs> my my love for martial arts movies you know i don't know if you've ever seen kung fu hustle but oh i have know, yes the, yes it, it's, it's extraordinary whole, <laughs> it's extraordinary yeah but the stephen chow is something that he does so often in his movies like the whole like you know like this fuck up who's not really good at anything but you like him because he's he's the popper you know he's the you know, he, he, he's the guy who has something of a code, even though the actions he does aren't great. Yeah. And then over the course of, you know, Hustle and Shaolin Soccer and some of his other movies, mm -hmm. like that character becomes the hero that he imagines himself being. And it, it is a phenomenal, I, I think that type of arc is something that we're just going to fall in love with time and time again, even if the movies themselves in Black's case, you know, don't connect with audiences um, from the get-go. And I think having it packaging a Shane Black movie as a Disney film or as a, a Predator movie, mm. um, you're going to get that, those mixed expectations, uh, which, and he's, he's always been an outsider that I don't think Hollywood has always been ready for his ideas. No. Um, even though he makes very mainstream movies, but yes. uh, again, he, um, he's someone that um, even if I don't love what he does, I'm always going to respect the end product at the very, very least. And, uh, yeah, we just happened to talk about uh, one of my favorites and, and my favorite movie of his. So thank you. No, thank you. That's great. Because he's always, his characters are always ones that are trying. I mean, they're not doing very mm -hmm. well, but you can see that they're trying at all. And especially Robert Downey Jr. He's trying to do the right thing. He just doesn't always do the right thing. Like, um, I don't follow through. So I was flirting with you. And then all of a sudden I had my tongue down your friend's throat. Um, because he's scared. You know, he's, he's, he's scared. I, yeah, like this, yeah. this woman knows everything about him <laughs> yeah everything about him so it's like in in goodness i mean i i mean i don't want to get too personal on this podcast but knock on wood uh but <laughs> but but like i i can relate to that aspect of, of danny jr that's all i'll say yeah uh, <laughs> 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 look 
everyone's been there. Everyone's done that kind of thing. You're like, you think you're going to end it and then you make a dead, terrible choice. You drink too much. And then you're like, I was not meant to end up with you, but oh, well. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but no, this is a great, great movie. And I love the contrast as we'll soon get into with uh, North by Northwest because uh, Harry's an idiot. Um, but Cary Grant is not an idiot. He is on top of everything. And the contrast between these two performances was absolutely amazing to watch. Um, Definitely. Just because of that reason, because they're both incredibly charming, both incredibly talented, can sp- deliver dialogue like no one's business. But then now we're going to about to get into a movie where Cary uh, Grant is the smartest person in the room, even though when he was apparently um, making it, he didn't understand anything, which I love. Um, so with that, we are going to be getting into the incredible Hitchcock North by Northwest. Um, now, okay, so the curtains are reopening for this, um, uh, for North by Northwest. What would be the first trailer you would show for it, Preston? The first trailer I would show is actually uh, Out of Sight the uh, Steven Soberg film. Oh, shoot, that's amazing. <laughs> no bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. Is your first time being around? Yeah, you're doing great. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. Two men by the fence! It's okay, we're the good guy. What are you doing here? Just a girl. What do you do for a living? You pack a shotgun. I'm a federal marshal and you're under arrest. I'm in. Let's go. Hey, you comfy? You have got to be kidding. Now you be a good girl. Now I'm gonna open up the. Hey, hey, hey. You want to sit down and have cocktails with a woman who tried to shoot you? It was an unusual experience. Wow, you are mean. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, for for people who haven't seen it, uh, basically. Um, the, the modern Cary Grant, um, as I like to call him, George Clooney. Yes. He stars as Jack Foley, who is uh, um, a two-bit thief. Um, that's pretty much all he does, who ends up, uh, uh, you know, going to prison. And he, um, he ends up, the way he breaks out of prison is that he comes, uh, he comes across the path of, uh, I believe her name is Karen Sisko, uh, yes. who's played by J-Lo. Yeah. And uh, on paper, you guys are probably like, okay, this is going to be just some romantic caper with George Clooney and J-Lo. Why should I care about this? And, but the thing is, it is exceptional. Um, It's so, like, I I think it's amazing. Um, Their chemistry is amazing. And the way Soderbergh is a filmmaker, again, as I said earlier on this podcast, like Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Uh, it's, It's one of my top three, possibly. And I think one of the cool things uh, about Soderbergh and he has the superpower to make people who not necessarily great actors look like great actors. And I think he pulls, cause this is before Hustlers, mind you. So there, you know, people still make, made JLo jokes at the time this came out. Yeah. And uh, he gets at the time was the best performance out of JLo's career in anyone's estimation. And um the the way that her and Clooney play off each other because what follows is a chase film where J-Lo has to look for Clooney like he it's like is and she is a textbook badass law woman who will take down everyone everyone from Isaiah Washington to John Cheadle is in the movie oh he is so good in this movie movie. (laughs) he's so good like the cast is I mean there's Viola Davis shows up for a bit Kathy Keener Steve Zahn it is one of these oceans level I yeah, mean, yes, 
Yes, it is a it is an oceans level cast. It's kind of a, a, a I don't want to call it a dry run for an oceans movie because I feel like that's kind of saying, well, you know, watch this before you watch oceans. But it really is, uh, it, it really is just a, a phenomenal chase film, a really great kind of romantic caper. It has a bit of the the, the noir. You know, to segue it from our last movie, it has a bit of the noir kind of like uh, trapping simply because it was it was adapted from an Elmore Leonard book. Yes. Um, in yeah. fact, Jackie Brown, uh, which stars, uh, <laughs> co-stars Michael Keaton is in this movie. Same character. Same character. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I just, I love that. No, me too. I mean, this movie is, again, Steven Soderbergh has, has the ability just to make the coolest movie in the room. I haven't seen Out of Sight yet. I'm dying to. Um and but this yeah it's just one of those movies i mean you have george clooney and jenna jennifer lopez at their probably well actually no they're still very attractive people but at their most hottest looking at each other constantly yeah. and it's a great um performance um because they can their chemistry is amazing in this movie i mean when you see have two beautiful people in a room you kind of want them to kiss but know so much more in this movie um I mean that bath sequence or in that bar I mean in the trunk of the goddamn car I mean every single time they're together this movie crackles and then you have the rest of this cast and the rest of everything going on I mean this has to be the best Steven Zan performance I mean the man I mean he's so great in this great. movie um Who's Guzman's in the movie too? He's, he's in too. He's amazing. I, I get so yeah. excited every time he pops up, especially in a Steven Soderbergh. I mean, the, in a movie, because you know he just knows exactly how to use him. Um, and he's great. And Dennis Farina's in it. I mean, this is a movie that yeah. just makes you smile because it is so, the, the filmmaking's so good. The acting, the cast, everything about this movie is just great. And um, there's a reason why, I think Steven Soderbergh keeps working with similar actors. Like I know later in his career, he keeps working with Meryl Streep um, because I think yeah. people just love working with him. I mean, yeah, Don Cheadle showed up a whole bunch, George Clooney. Um, yeah, I think he's just one of those um, directors that anyone who works with him know they're going to be doing something interesting, whether it's something really cool, like an Elmo Leonard thing, like uh, Out of Sight, or like in um, a Rat Pack uh, remake in Ocean's wow. Eleven, or even in like something like The Laundromat, which is a weird homemade movie, but has the oh, yeah. A-list cast in it. And I'm just like, watching really this guy. Really, really good. Really good. It's a really good yeah. one. I actually like The Laundromat. I know a lot of people dunked on it, but I'm like, guys, he made this for $5 and still had that cast. How? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, he's explaining a lot, but this stuff needs kind of explaining. I mean, if it's about the Panama Papers, for God's sakes. Um, it's, no, it's, um, I mean, he, he's, he's kind of this very edgy, kind of dangerous filmmaker who make, again makes mainstream movies. I mean, going back to Traffic, it's, yeah, yeah. this is, a, and this is an amazing movie um, because of it, because I think, what we're going to get into is how something like even um kiss kiss bang bang and definitely out of sight is very hitchcocky and there's a there's, there's a reason why this it's a what like a verb now i think is or is it a noun i don't know Hitchcockian is a thing and this was an actual it's guy. definitely a thing it's definitely i think i think it's an adjective adjective uh, thank you yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah yeah thank you i couldn't quite remember my grammar um Hitchcockian <laughs> is, is 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 an adverb and because of very specific reasons and because of this movie and I think um 
yeah so this is an absolutely um perfect perfect trailer um and it's like such a great movie um okay so for my first trailer i because i've been on a bit of a bond kick lately and i was watching this movie going mm, i think someone took a few things and added it to uh, james bond but i'm gonna go for uh sean connery's second outing russia with love <laughs> Another Bulgarian they use as a killer. Take a look. You should remember him. This man kills for pleasure. James Bond, the notorious, amazing Doctor No secret agent is back. And half the world is out to kill him. As he fits his murderous talents against the Iron Curtain and its velvet women. Well, I'll tell you something, Coltoni. You're one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. I think my mouth is too big. No, it's the right size. For me, that is. Ooh, um, yes. I was going to go Dr. No, but then kind of thinking about it, I think this movie has more, uh, Russia with Love has way more in common with um, uh, this movie, the helicopter scene, I think the whole yep. train stuff. Um, and it's kind of one of the best James Bond movies um, just because everything is so cool um, and just works really, really well. Um, so yeah, it's a classic, but yeah, I'm also going with, uh, yeah. So from Russia with love, actually the, has the, it's my least favorite song in it, but oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that because it's actually from Russia with love is actually my favorite Bond movie. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. 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 So I am, I'm, I'm super, I'm super elated. You picked this one, um, which yeah, the, the big irony is that it has my least favorite song too. Anytime <laughs> the movie is over and it goes like, from Russia with love and and yeah that Matt Munro yeah like okay God God you know Godspeed but you no. know like not not a great song <laughs> <laughs> no I just like you didn't even have to have a song for that one um it's no, it's the no. second movie but it's no I think Sean Connery is the never will never be as cool as he is in Russia with love and that's saying a lot considering like Goldfinger and I still kind of like only die twice and I, I apologize for that um only live twice I and I'd still apologize I'm a fan for that. Of that one as well yeah I'm a, I'm a fan <laughs> oh good good because I watched that because I my introduction to James Bond was actually Austin Powers so when I saw that movie I'm like going oh my god this is Austin Powers um and the fact that it actually has ninja school with it with us with a sign um yes I realized that <laughs> But a lot of Bonds are, are really racist. So I just have to, you just have to kind of accept it. But um, Brush With Love is a great, it's my favorite Connery. So I think it's probably top five um, Bond for me, though this changes. Um, it's just works on every level. And that trailer is so cool. The movie it just works really well. It's one of the great action movies of the 60s. Um, I mean, oh, Robert Shaw is amazing. Um, so good. So is, is, good. We'll get into another amazing henchman in North by Northwest, but everything, this movie is just amazing. And you just sit there with a big grin in your face going, yeah, this is Bond. This is kind of what, what I want from a Bond movie. Totally, totally. No, Bond is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a person, um, you know, and I think, you know, uh, kind of tying in with the Ocean's kind of fandom I, I, I have earlier, there's not a lot of movie franchises that I, I just like, overly scrutinized like yeah. uh, I love a lot of the big ones obviously uh but like uh, I feel like I like the ones typically that a lot of people love yeah whereas um the, the two franchises that I'm just complete stand for are the Oceans movies and Bond movies yeah. Bond movies are so important to me 
And I'm super happy you brought up this one because one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites is because of, I don't think Connery has ever been better in that role than he is in Russia. Like he nope. is so effortlessly cool, mm. you know, like, you know, like he, he's brutal in all the ways that he mm. is in Dr. No, but he has a bit of that romantic charm with, with uh, Tatiana. Yes. And you get a lot more of that than you get in Dr. No, you know, as yeah, much as I right. love Dr. No, like he, he doesn't meet Hoodie Ryder until, you know, literally towards the third act of the movie. Yeah, I was and, surprised with that actually because that's the scene from Doctor No, and then you're watching it going, "Oh, she hasn't shown. Oh, wow, we're we're on the island, of course. Oh, wow, okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, literally, it's it's from Russia. Literally takes everything that works about Doctor No and and makes it. It's it's the first bit that you get from the franchise of being that gritty espionage, globe trotting adventure that it's known for. Yes. But you don't get the, the grit as much, I don't think, and, and you see that with all, each of the bonds, you know, yeah. like. Craig films, you know, Casino Royale is very gritty. And then by the time you get to No Time to Die, it's like, okay, like there's there's uh, airplanes that go underwater to get to the bad guy's lair. All right, I'm, I'm in, but this is not how, how this arc began for, for these films. And, and and I think it's it's a very interesting series to break down that pattern. But, oh, you know, it does. I, what, and each each kind of each kind of phase of Bond with each kind of actor has its own kind of thing like that. They always start off a little bit gritty. And then they kind of go into this kind of amazing, yeah, underwater planes going to the to the lair kind of thing, um, two differing results. Um, and it's a fascinating thing to break down. But yeah, I love the Bond movies for all its kind of ups and downs. And but one of the highest ups this has to be Russia. I mean, it's just it has every yeah. As I keep saying, it has everything I want from a Bond movie. And um, yeah, so what would your second trailer be for Ooh. North by Northwest? Speaking of Bond, um, I have one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best Bond knockoffs, and that is Into the Dragon. Roper, Williams, and Lee, the deadly three, penetrate the secret chambers of an evil island empire. What do you know about Han? He lives like a king on that island, totally self-sufficient. A fortress without walls, protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons. This is Enter the Dragon, the first martial arts film produced by a major Hollywood studio. Yes. <laughs> this movie is so cool. It is so epic. And uh, in fact, I want to say, um, I believe you actually covered it recently. I want to yeah, say. Uh, I did, yes. Yeah. Yeah, really enjoy that episode. And I, I brought it up again because of that Bond connection, because so much of uh, the Dragon is interesting in Bruce Lee's admittedly short oeuvre, uh, mm. because it's it's the movie that a lot of us Westerners know him best for. Yes. Um, it's definitely the movie of his that um, I, I've probably seen the most um, and is his most popular in the States. Mm. Oh, me too, yeah. Of, yeah, and... Um, but but it's it is like a crazy you watch it as an adult it is a crazy kung fu tournament moral combat ish doctor no yes and and it that sounds like a potpourri because it literally is but for some reason it, it so works and you know and and bruce lee i mean his arc is so easy to glop onto because he's getting revenge for his sister's you know death yes at, at the hands of of uh mr Han, mr han's man uh men Yes. Uh, bullshit, Mr. Handman. Like I, I love that <laughs> quote so much. I love so much of the action. Is the action is so ahead of its time? Oh, it I is. I love the production design. It's very Ken Adam esque. 
Um, and uh, I, I love the, and it, it just, it's such a, and it's one of those iconic movies where the iconography really stands up to today. Um, and I'm just fully invested in it. Um, and I love John Saxon in the movie um, as well. So yeah, my, my second trailer has to be Enter the Dragon. It kind of has to be. I mean, again, talking about a cool movie and then, yeah, because this is the movie that a lot of people in the West were introduced to martial arts movies. It was Bruce Lee because he's like the insanely great. Um, but then also the more you know about, then if you go back and watch more martial arts movies, you realize the opening scene has friggin' Samo Hung. Um, and, yeah, yeah. and friggin' Bolo. Um, it's just kind of... <laughs> It's, it's in the kind of insane wealth of um, cast because it is actually bleeding together the East and the West. I mean, that was kind of what Bruce Lee wanted and it's kind of the biggest tragedy is he never got to see it, how big it got. Um, but this was him going, no, I want to become a worldwide movie star. I'm going to make a movie that kind of introduces people to what a martial arts movie is and then but also bring kind of these Western sensibilities. So I'm going to make it Bond. Um, and it's kind of the best way of doing it and then you throw Jim Saxon and Jim Kelly in there and it's just like this is amazing how do I not love it okay <laughs> Jim Saxon can't do a round kick but that doesn't matter because he's freaking awesome and then I can see Jim Kelly do his thing so it's kind of like yeah it's kind of this amazing marketing movie that's kind of the all these quadrants like was flowing in the 1970s okay what is popular right bond black exploitation martial arts movies um, yeah. this thing as well sandwich it's sandwiched yeah. between uh, a black exploitation Bond movie and a kung fu Bond movie because '73 yes. was also the year of Live and Let Die, and 1974 was the Man of the Golden Gun. It which really is, was. It really yeah, was. Yeah. yeah, and this movie did it better than both of them. I have watched this movie <laughs> too many times, but it did it better. Easily. Easily. Oh, Roger Moore. Oh dear. Um, it's it's kind of yeah, it's a great movie and a kind of a great trailer because it's really. Yes, we're talking about a lot of James Bond movies kind of thing, but once we get into North by Northwest, you're going to understand why. I mean, this is the first time I'd watched North by Northwest since I'd seen any Bond movies, and I was just like going, oh, okay, you made another secret masterpiece that I didn't realize you'd made, Hitchcock. Okay, I get it. Um, which I guess <laughs> is going to bring me into my final trailer. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of my, definitely my favorite uh, Cary Grant performances. And that is, of course, Charade from 1963. What are you doing in here? I'm having a nervous breakdown. Well, her life wasn't always that gay. There were times when she was in dire jeopardy. Hasn't it occurred to you that I'm having a tough time keeping my hands off you? Oh, you should see your face. What's the matter with it? It's lovely. Reggie. Got you. <laughs> Waterproof? No. You're Charles Voss's wife. Now that he's dead, you're their only lead. Mr. Bartholomew, if you're trying to frighten me, you're doing a first-rate job. Um, yes. A movie yes, where yes, yes. Audrey Hepburn outcharms Grant, and that is no easy feat. Um, though I'll get into his acting style. I think he, not on purpose, but I think he's a very um, sharing actor. But, oh, God, Charade is so good. I mean, Stanley Donan making um, kind of a Hitchcock movie, but just making it so much fun and delightful that you just, again, and then another movie I just grinned when I watched. It's just those two together are absolutely amazing. 
No, it's a it's a blast. Uh, charades uh, charade is actually one of the very first Criterion Blu-rays I ever bought. Oh wow! Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I've I, I've always been a fan of it. I I it was one of those uh, Cary Grant movies, and we'll get into this when we talk about North officially. But uh, Cary Grant, him and Humphrey Bogart were my guys. Yeah. Like, when I was uh, who got me into classic film because mm. I, I paid attention to actors more than directors when I was when I was coming of age and oh, yeah. And um, as I think we, a lot of us do, uh, when, we, when we're just cutting our teeth into, into cinephilia, but um, yeah, no, I, I echo all your sentiments 100%. Like it, it's one of the most charming movies of its in any decade. Mm. And I think that um, to be able to outshine Hugh Grant and then to also be a competent lead, and I'm saying that for Audrey Hepburn, especially yeah. to, to be able to be an effective lead in a movie with George Kennedy and uh, um, Walter Matthau. Yes, and, uh, James Corbin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all these great character actors. I love Henry Mancini's music, oh. uh, Henry Mancini's music. Like, I think it's phenomenal um, in that movie. Like, I love the the Congos at the beginning that kicks it off. Um, I'm curious, did, did Saul Bass do the opening titles for Raid? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I want to say yes, I think he did, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. No um, but I think I think he did. Um, just oh God, this Paris sparkles in this movie. Um, yeah, and it's um, just kind of a just a delight of a movie. And because I love the fact that even um, Cary Grant was like, guys, I'm getting too old to be playing against. 22 year old or no I don't think Audrey Hepburn was 22 but he actively sort of said can she come for me because I feel really weird like hitting on her um and I just didn't know that no it's yeah because um he because he didn't want to do North by Northwest because he thought I'm too old for this um and they're like no 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 you're not you're still Cary Grant which because he still is um but yeah I think he felt really uncomfortable about having to share and have a love interest with um Audrey Hepburn so he said look if she could come actively come for me that would be great um because I can't do this anymore No, that's super, that's super interesting, especially because uh, when I was uh, doing a little bit of research after this recent rewatch of North by Northwest, um, you know, uh, Eva Marie Saint's character says she's 26 in the movie, but in in real life, she was actually 34, which yes, that's the cutoff for for actresses they talk about. So I don't know, I just, just kind of wrap everything around there, but no, Charade is awesome. Like I, I, the scene in the, where he come, where uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn's character um, is in the funeral for her husband and then everyone just comes to stab the body um, just melted my brain the first time I saw it I was like I have never seen an old movie have such macabre humor <laughs> yes. but it works and it, it is it works it's so and that's another thing too and I think we'll get into this uh, with with these other movies we'll talk about but it's so beautifully shot like oh. Charade is a gorgeous movie and I mean, the leads are gorgeous, so that definitely helps. Um, and and the, the charm just effuses. It, it just it just comes across the screen. And uh, and yeah, I, I love 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 Charade. Oh, me too. And it was Maurice Binder who did the opening credits, uh, not Soul Bass. Oh, um, okay. I just looked that up. I was just like, yeah, who did this? Because those are amazing opening credits. Um, but yeah, but Soul Bass is um, like one of the greats as well, and did like anatomy of um a murder and a f- whole bunch of other um really great ones but no that was not one of his 
Oh, we even did The Shining. That is so cool. Um, yeah, Soul Bass is also amazing. It did all the other ones except for Charade. And Charade does actually look like very Soul Bass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, ironically enough, Bender was the Bond titles person for uh, up until, uh, I believe it was License to Kill was his last one. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so the, I, I think it's all I coming together. <laughs> yeah, all, all coming together. But yeah, yeah. No, I, I love Charade a lot. Yes. Now you have told me that you watched North by Northwest when you were relatively young. So this is something you've grown up with. Now what the devil is all this about? Why was I brought here? Games? Must we? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. I told you I'm not Kaplan, whoever he is. Do you intend to cooperate with us? I'd like a simple yes or no. A simple no. A pleasant journey, sir. I'm Kaplan. I wonder if I look like Kaplan. Do you know this man? <sighs> you saw the newspapers. My fingerprints were on the knife, on a car thief, a drunk driver, and I murdered a man for revenge. I wouldn't have a chance. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? Oh, I know you aren't a murderer. You don't. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. Next it is it is um it's a movie that um so basically um uh since this is my first time like being like you know like being on this podcast um my my mom is a big reason why um i've gotten into i, I i've become such a, a movie lover mm. um i hesitate to say film buff cinephile some of that maybe imposter syndrome because i do have a letterbox <laughs> but um <laughs> But but no, I, I just I, I love uh, I really do you know I love the, the art of movies and, and that kind of thing. And my mom, she her her jam was westerns and TCM and and old Hollywood. Like those were yeah. kind of that whole era of filmmaking was kind of her thing. Like and so me being a very a very curious kid, you know, like uh, of course I loved Disney growing up. I I I watched um, you know. Iron Giant and movies like that and 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 that kind of thing but like I really wanted to like watch more adult fair and my mm. mom was like okay well if you're so curious instead of watching these R-rated movies watch these these older movies now it wasn't until I was about uh five or six where um I really well past that age really like it was around this time I must have been like 10 or 11 when I saw North mm. Northwest and uh because at that point I had gotten accustomed to black and white cinema and and North um, was actually my very first Hitchcock. I knew that Hitchcock did a lot of black and white movies because I would see clips on TCM with like Rebecca and yeah. it must have been like foreign correspondent and mm. stuff like Lifeboat and clips like that. But uh, this was the first one that I remember because uh, I remember when Robert Osborne was still alive, the, the TCM host mm. um, who has since passed on, he he introduced a lot of like major classics, like greatest movie ever made type movies uh, yes. uh, at, yeah. at 7 p.m. at night. And being a kid, like watching the watching Tisa and my mom, who used to watch these all day after coming home from work and definitely on off days, mm. I'll be like, hey, who is this guy? Okay, who's this Cary Grant guy or whatever? And I was just completely transfixed by this movie. Um, and at the time, I didn't really know why, but like, for one thing it was just super it wasn't just the fact that it was in color but the fact that it was in technicolor yeah. and the fact that you have this ordinary charming as hell guy as the lead yes um he gets caught up in a situation that's so above anything that he's used to i mean there's that joke um on on in the mount rushmore scene where 
um, he was like, yeah, my two wives divorced me because they said I live too dull life. Um, <laughs> and, and you're just like, how could you be dull? Like you're, you know, you're not the best person in the world because like uh, the movie literally begins with, you know, <laughs> him, 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 him lying to someone just to get a cab ride and then yes. calling it an expedient exaggeration. Yes. Um, and of course there's all these like crazy action set pieces um, which for a 50s movie just melted my brain. I was like, dude, like that, that iconic bit of him running from the prop duster really oh. got me. And, and yeah. of course he goes to the United Nations and, and, and witnesses a murder and gets pinned for the murder. And it, it's just, this tale of mistaken identity is as old as time, but, or it feels that way, but it, it, it's always brought me back time and time again. And I think yeah. the combination of Grant's, uh, I know I'm talking a lot here. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, no, please continue. No, this is this is why uh, I wanted to talk to you about this movie because I know you loved it, and this is great. <laughs> well, the combination of Grant's like self-deprecating demeanor. You mm. know, I brought you know, you know, I, I brought up out of sight, and I, I liken George Clooney to being the the, the contemporary analog to Grant because mm. both actors are very are known for being their types. You know, yes. there's definitely moments in their careers where you see a bit of their their dark side, you know, I, I, I honestly, as much as North is my favorite Hitchcock movie, I would argue that Notorious is possibly the best Hitchcock movie. Oh, yes, and yes, I, and absolutely. I that, and I think you see a bit of, of Grant's dark side played very expertly uh, used by Hitchcock in that movie. Yeah. And, and North doesn't utilize his dark side as much. North is, is very light and very, uh, very self-effacing compared yes. to his other movies. And it was devised that way. Oh yeah, and, uh, it, this feels tailor made for a Hitchcock movie because um, I think they even said to him they brought this movie to him. And goes, yeah, we brought your Hitchcock movie. Go make it. Um, and he <laughs> and Hitchcock was saying, oh, I just wanted to make something that people would enjoy and not have as much symbolism. And when he was doing his interviews with Truffaut, um, yeah. it's but. In saying that, I still think this is a secret masterpiece. And yes, he may not be doing all his kind of three, five levels of stuff he will usually do in his in his movies. I still think there's a lot of stuff going on, especially how he's making this. Um, it actually feels like he's having fun. Like uh, th there are some movies where you feel like it's hard work, um, something like Rope mm -hmm. or, or Ray Window. But this one, he actually kind of, it feels lighter, like he's actually having fun with it, which feels very un-Hitchcocky un un in a way. <laughs> No, completely, completely. I know I'm right there with you. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, on Letterbox, I called this uh, I, I, my, upon my most recent watch. I called this the the anti Vertigo uh, because yes, very I much think so. this movie this movie is so interesting for Hitch's career um, uh, because uh, I get the feeling that you're a Hitchcock fan as well. I think we oh, talked about that. Off yeah, mic. yes, yeah. He was Hitchcock was I cannot I. I can't actually say which Hitchcock movie I saw first because I know I just saw snippets kind of everywhere, but he was kind of the director that I knew was classic cinema. If I was going to, if you asked me as a 10 year old, right, who makes classic cinema? I would have said Alfred Hitchcock and I would have said, said John Ford because that was my dad's favorite director. Your mum was a classic movie buff. My dad was definitely that for me. Um, and though dad didn't watch a lot of Hitch, but yeah, that's kind of what I just knew through the kind of thing. And yeah, he's always been around and I never paid attention to him. Um, and then I just started to. And then I was always kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I see kind of what, yeah, he made Psycho, which is not, it's very tricky and very showy, but he doesn't have that much subtext because everything's text in that movie. Same with Vertigo. Yeah. If you watch Vertigo, that's just him going, no, 
This is James Stewart want to screw a dead woman. This is exactly what it's about. There's no bones about it. Um, and it's kind of even as Truffaut, it's Truffaut, read his thing interview with Truffaut on Vertigo. It is fascinating, and he's just like being the sleazy old man talking about it. It is incredible. Like he's like, no, no, this is actually no. There's no subtext. That's what the actual movie is about. Because I think Truffaut was like, going, so I think I'm seeing this in the movie, and he's like, no, you. That is exactly what you're saying. No, he wants to screw a dead. Why do you think I put so much green in this movie? Um, and. And it's kind of through that. And then I sort of, because um, the first time I saw the North by Northwest, um, actually, I always associate this movie with the two Bond movies we mentioned before, um, Live and Let Die and um, Man with the Golden Gun, because I saw it in between them. And so weirdly, I just I always think of Christopher, uh, Christopher Lee yelling um, knickknack Tabasco sauce for some weird reason every time I think of North by Northwest. But although, oh, it's okay. It doesn't feel like a hitch. It feels like it's such a Hitchcock movie that, he's making it with his eyes closed I don't think that's true now I don't think he ever made anything with his eyes closed but it felt so the wrong man the spies the kind of convoluted plot the the thing sequence but when you go back and watch it yeah it's his remix but when you go back and watch it you're like oh but he's doing so much interesting things with the camera he's really just moving that thing around and doing weird shots and just kind of playing with things it kind of feels like a a young man's movie almost even though Cary Grant is 53 and Alfred Hitchcock Mm -hmm. would have been about a similar age I'm guessing because god I mean I still think Hitchcock invented the wrong man I mean the man was making movies since 1925 so it's kind of inconceivable that he came up with it but yeah and I think the same thing I had with Ray Window I watched it and went yeah, it was okay. And then I rewatched it. I went, oh, oh shit. This is an actual masterpiece. This is not. And I think he does that. I think he has this facade of, you can just, which he wanted to make movies for everyone. And he always said he wanted to catch that last 20% of audiences who were no, weren't necessarily going to get the subtext. So he could just make this really great popcorn movie. Um, and then when you go back and watch it, you realize everything else that's going on in this yeah. movie. And that's North by Northwest. Um, I can't sort of say, yeah, it's it's pure popcorn movie, but at the same time, I mean, that shot when James Mason punches um, Landau and he falls down the chair and that kind of switch with the camera, it's amazing. So oh, yeah. it's, he's, got, he's doing all these things and that dialogue is so sharp and so good. And just the way he's cutting, getting his editor to cut things and the shots that he wants, it's kind of, no, it's the master going, yeah, I'm making a Hitchcock a really made Hitchcock movie, but I'm going to show you what I can actually do for a Hitchcock movie. And you're sitting there going, "Yes, yes, yes, Mr. Hitchcock, you've you've this you Hitchcocky into your own movie. I, I see what you've done there." <laughs> no, it's and that's and I think it's cool for for two reasons. One, I love how you were like, you know, like you upon first watch, you know, of this movie, you were just like, "Oh, you know, it's it's fine," and then you rewatched it, and I think I definitely think this is a movie where context does help. Oh, and I think us yeah. contextualizing it from the the frames of the uh, the spy movies of today really helps appreciate this movie. Yes. But at the same time, excuse me, this is one of the very first action movies, which I think is so interesting. Yes. Um, because, you know, 1954, you have The Seven Samurai come out, and that's often considered the first modern action movie. Mm. With, with If you want to be, if you want to be more anal about it, and, you know, I'm sure your dad will completely you know give me a thumbs up you know for saying this but stagecoach in 39 oh, you, know, yeah, if, yeah. Or, uh, you know that's that's the birth of a lot of those tropes yeah but the 50s was really where that started kind of segue from the western the uh, the east market and then to come back 
and be experimental. And I think Hitchcock um, definitely, you know, he he wanted to work with Ernest Lehman, who as a screenwriter who I love, like he mm. wrote the uh, Sweet Smell of Success, yes, which yeah. is awesome. And uh, I believe they wanted to write the the wreck of uh, they he Hitch wanted Lehman to collaborate with him on the wreck of of uh, the Mary Deer, which oh. Lehman did not want to. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and of course they eventually made like uh, that movie got made in the same year as this. I want to say, but with a completely different cast and crew yeah. than they had in mind. But uh, yeah, Lehman was just like you know like. I don't want to do that movie. Then Hitchcock came back to him with these ideas that he's always wanted to make where I want to make a movie with mistaken identity, which he had done several times, Yes. but he, with a UN building and a set piece across Mount Rushmore. Yes. And I think that Lehman was like, oh, and he said before in, in plenty of interviews since, you know, like I, I wanted to make the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. And I love there's something that Mike Scott has talked about on here before in other podcasts hmm. where I love it when filmmakers can flex. Yes. Um, I love it when fil- when a filmmaker can do a mainstream movie um, and put their complete personality into it. That's why I love Iron Man 3 so much. That's hmm. why I love James Wan do with Furious 7. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a lot of other modern tentpole examples. But with this movie, I love the fact that it's a tentpole well, not a temple, but a blockbuster from the old Hollywood tradition where one of our masters who at the time, you know, we see Virgo as this magnificent, you know, classy, you know, masterpiece now, but back then it got reviled when it came out. Like people didn't quite understand or, or what to make of it. It made Hitchcock, people uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah it made <laughs> For people, obvious reasons. It, it made, yeah. It made the everyman scary. It made yeah. Stewart scary. And he was doing really creepy shit. Yeah. And and North is so interesting because it's sandwiched between these two visibly maverick works. And like you said, North is kind of a secret masterpiece in that it's it's a popcorn movie done with a sort of sleight of hand. And it's exactly. it's using, oh, sorry, sorry. Oh no, I'm just agreeing with you. Yes, yes, keep going. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's using another everyman in, for, in the form of Cary Grant where Cary Grant's not an everyman as relatable as Jimmy Stewart is on the surface. Like Jimmy Stewart, we like because, you know, like we see ourselves in Jimmy Stewart. Like we love It's a Wonderful Life because a lot of those issues as adults are issues that we face and dreams that we wish we had. Yes. Versus Cary Grant, we like because he's Clooney. He's he's cool. Like he's an aspirational alpha male. But Clooney, but Cary Grant does such a great job in all of his in all of his big films, especially this one of being self-deprecating uh of of kind of like the moment he at the beginning that i just talked about where he lies to to get in the taxi cab he's like hey uh do i look heaviest to you or do i feel heaviest you know uh and and you know i need to write think thin and stuff like that like and 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 you know like uh how he how he tells leo g carroll later in the movie you know um you know (laughs) i have two ex-wives, a mother, a secretary, and uh, uh, two bartenders. Few, yeah, two bartenders in, in the world who depend on me. You know, I can't, and, and it basically just being like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not George Ka- Kaplan. I'm not the super spy, but yeah. he, he looks the part. And I think what keeps me coming back to this movie is the fact that as a kid, I had never seen an action movie where the main character was so consistently self-deprecating and hilarious and relatable through that, even though I secretly 
still to this day want to be Cary Grant. So, no, right. Yeah. yeah, I think even um, uh, Die Hard's uh, Bruce Willis character, I can't believe I'm forgetting his character's name. John McClane um, does a very similar trick. And I think, yeah, when you watch, I think context is really important for North by Northwest because you've said two really important, uh, a couple of important things. One, it's sandwiched between Vertigo and Psycho, two really transgressive uh, Hitchcock really flexing his muscles um, and just going for it movies where you watch that yeah there's a reason why Vertigo Bomb when it came out because it made people very uncomfortable Jim James yeah. Jimmy Stewart is incredibly creepy and domineering and disgusting and awful in that I mean he could have had a nice life with Mitch I mean it's she's awesome yeah. she designs bras I mean come on this movie is the woman's perfect um, but yet he's not because he's got this darkness in him that he can't quite shake and it all has to do with um kim novak and mm-hmm. it would have made people really uncomfortable and then so to kind of make up for it he makes north by northwest where Cary grant is the guy you want to be yes he's self-deprecating but he's cool he's on the ball he's not harry from kiss kiss bang bang who doesn't know what he's doing and he's just bumbling through everything he has real agency then he makes psycho with his tv crew and changes yeah cinema <laughs> through it um he creates them he creates even though uh you could argue if you want to get technical that also peeping tom came out the same year um and bombed again oh, yeah. uncomfortable but psycho for some reason just grabbed everyone it made people feel uncomfortable in the right ways and created the the modern horror movie um the fact that uh george romero was one of the people who was watching them uh make the the train and the central train sequence it says a lot i think just in oh the, yeah um synchronicity and, and and all that kind of stuff but um it's kind of so yeah so this is the kind of the movie it's a sandwich in between them and even though i did watch this when i was watching bond movies i didn't click that this was the prototype for james bond i mean yes it's based on ian fleming's books but visually this is what they were taking from um and yeah. It's kind of, again, but then again, you kind of see this as, the, yeah, one of the first kind of modern, okay, Seven Samurai, then you get into North by Northwest, and he, Hitchcock was very aware of what was happening in movies. I don't know if he was a huge movie buff, but he was very aware of what Europe and Asia were, were doing. Um, oh, yeah. And then, yeah, and then you get this kind of, then he makes this kind of movie, and then you see John McClane is kind of the um, treat, is, is, Cary Grant in a way yes he's a bit more schlubby he's a bit more dad like but he's that kind of self-deprecating found himself in the wrong situation has to try and get yeah. on top of it but he's always on that he's always ahead of them um and so you he's can he's a Grant of... Stewart with with a badge and f-bombs I, yes. I've always said yes. that about Die Hard like it, it is the it is the wrong man archetype where McTiernan is beating the shit out of the wrong man and leaving yeah. him dry and all by himself yeah and that's what that's what we love about Die Hard and I think this template not just the Bonnie and stuff, but the but the the Hitchcockian wrong man mistaken identity thing that gets Harry into trouble and kiss kiss bang bang and definitely definitely gets Cary uh, Grant into some some hijinks in this movie. Um, Roger Thornhill uh, specifically, like I think I feel like yeah, like John McClane and, and guys like that because Die Hard created a brand new template out of this. Um, oh yeah, and, and create a second phase of that. And and I love what you said about what psycho did for horror because i think also what it did for uh hitchcock as a person and as an artist i think it kind of north by northwest i've always looked at as the swan song for this phase of hitchcock yes like when very he, much when he when he came to america him and uh his wife alma and mm. 
you know, they were killing it with their American, you know, their Hollywood movies like the Rebecca's and, you know, to, to just do Rebecca and foreign correspondent the same year, I think is insane. <laughs> it's totally um, insane. It's totally insane. And literally just 20 straight years of, of, of uh, all these genius legendary films. Hmm. And then you get to North by Northwest, which I, I feel like gets studied. And we talked about this a little bit off mic, but I feel like North by Northwest is parodied and is influential, but people talk more about I find that people talk more about the influence of North by Northwest more than the movie itself sometimes. And that kind of kind of sours me a little bit because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. I think to be able to make a movie that where you have a master filmmaker who if if you're not paying attention, you you think it's on autopilot. Like you're not super paying attention to mm. the matte painting shot of oh. him running out of the UN. And it's a maze brought to the screen, which watching this on a widescreen TV in 2021 mm. was super bright and super cool. And all of the, the way that the shots are arranged, um, the way that the shots are arranged, uh, uh, even, even the, the claustrophobic stuff with uh, Cary Grant and making out with Eva Marie Saint's character, um, them enclosed in the train, like yeah. that is a very sensual moment because uh, the camera is still, but they're turning around. Yes. And that's something that Hitchcock, uh, it's the inverse of what Hitchcock was doing in Notorious because Notorious, after the first time that uh, uh, Devlin and uh, Alicia kiss mm. um, and, and they're making out even more. And there's that long take of that where he's talking on the phone, he puts the phone down and then they, they make out some more. It's one long take. Whereas in this movie, it's one long scene of the camera just being still yes um there might be a cut or two if i remember correctly I'm i think there's a couple of cut i think there's a couple yeah. of cuts but he, he hitchcock had got to the stage where he was able to sort of seamlessly put those together that you weren't necessarily noticing what he was doing so I, but i think there's a couple of cuts if i remember correctly yeah it, it, okay perfect because mm. that speaks to the, the brilliance of this movie where mm. another another brilliance of it is that um you, you're not noticing the trickery i mean certainly when i was a kid and i didn't have as much the language of film as I, I quite am able to articulate now. Mm, yes. Um, I wasn't paying attention to all those affectations, but now having watched a lot more Hitchcock and just a lot more movies in this time period, you know, and I love, and I'm, I'm the type of action fan. I'm a huge action movie fan. Um, I love action, especially from the sixties kind of period. Like I love the, the gray escape, you know, yes. I love uh, the dirty dozen. I love uh, these, these types of, thrillers and and yeah and i love how i love kind of seeing filmmakers be like monkeys with a wrench just being like yeah. hey, how did you come up with this so early on and i just think mm. that's cool no i think it is and i think you're right this is absolutely the swan song for um before hitchcock became known as the um who made horror movies like he made psycho then he made the birds then marnie birds. he he really got to flex his muscles in terms of not because he he came up pre-code and then he went to Hollywood and that was all Hayes code so he was very much okay how do I get around things and it's a lot of trains going through tunnels uh, especially North by Northwest um it's it's um but then when you get into the 60s and then it, everything goes away and he's able to make Psycho and all money and these written frenzy which is like Jesus Christ Hitchcock oh what are you doing um and I love that <laughs> frenzy by the way I, it's so sleazy it's it's amazing um but you can no, see I, I, dig to... frenzy. I, I dig frenzy quite a bit it's, yeah. it's so it is crazy, crazy oh, 
it's so uncomfortable. He's like, yeah, I'm going to show you nudity, but it's not going to be in the way that any of you are going to make you feel absolutely, you're going to feel like you need a shower afterward. Um, it's <laughs> oh, it's um, like, yeah, this is the man who knows exactly how he's going to affect an audience. He already knows that. He knows exactly, this is a guy who's done this for so long. He knows exactly where to put the camera, where to put a cut, and he knows exactly what impact he's going to have on um on the characters i mean he called actors cattle i mean he, he wasn't i think no i don't think that's particularly true because he liked certain actors um whether they he could work with them easier whether he just liked their screen presence whether he generally liked them maybe with uh because grant and stewart he worked with a lot um yes mm -hmm. it could be very controlling and um everything misogynistic. like that misogynistic <laughs> Then you yeah. get these amazing, yeah. like the cool blonde. And then you got Grace Carley, Carley just playing his game, being better than it. But it's kind of, yeah, he was a, he was a conflicting guy, and you kind of see that in his in his movies. Um, and what North by Northwest does is goes, yeah, I'm going to make the ultimate Hitchcock movie, and then I'm going to go do other stuff because I'm I've done that. But he makes this movie, which he essentially events a action genre. And I think you're right. I think people do talk about the influence of this movie more than the actual movie. It's kind of like how where Citizen Kane sits. It's like, yes, it's called the greatest movie ever made. Yeah. And same yeah. with North by Northwest. North by Northwest does actually get on a, quite a few best of ever movies. Um, but people talk about the influence of Citizen Kane because every time you show someone who doesn't necessarily understand the fact that this is the first time they built a set with a ceiling so the camera could like, poke up um or yeah. certain montages or, yeah and deep focus and all that kind of stuff because you've seen that so much already and then you watch it and you're like oh but i already know all this no and you gotta go no 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 this influence this is the first time someone did it and i think you have to do the same thing with north by northwest this is the first time you had these kind of grandiose kind of sequences like a plane coming down and really trying to kill uh, Cary Grant. I mean, the fact that they're hanging off the freaking Mount Rushmore um, <laughs> is kind of incredible. Um, it's got these amazing action sequences that keeps you going. And he knows how to use this kind of confusing plot that that's the propulsion of what's happening because your surrogate is Cary Grant. He has no idea what's happening, but he's going to be a bravado and kind of go, no, 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 this is, I'm okay. I'm going to be Kaplan for a while. I'm going to see what this suit feels like. And, I don't know what's <laughs> happening, but it's an it's iconic kind of, gray suit. Ooh, it's that iconic god. gray suit. I mean, oh my god, it's it's absolutely. Well, it's funny to me, yeah. like on this rewatch, on this rewatch, uh, like uh, I love like all the moments, especially after the crop duster scene. Like right after that, he gets out of a, a taxi, and he's just like, "Okay, I'm just gonna strut in here. I know I'm a wanted man, but I'm just gonna have the same gray suit I ran in just in the scene <laughs> earlier." And I'm just gonna. And it's funny to me because. Um, like, like I, I used to question for a long time. Okay, why is the suit so popular? Like, why, why is the suit? Because I mean, I was reading that uh, Tom Cruise and Collateral, uh, kind of that character of Vincent, kind of based his look off of Cary Grant in this movie, which yeah. I find super fascinating. <laughs> so cool, <laughs> um, so cool. And I think because gray is such a neutral color and just mm. looks good on anyone, I think that's part of the reason why it's just so many male viewers kind of. Really took to it because the movie was a big hit when it came out. Oh, it was huge! Yeah, and it was huge, and um, and and I love the, I just love how, and I bring up his look especially because yeah, like he he looks dumbfounded, he looks confused because he is like he 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 is the ultimate man on the run because he's like he eventually is uh, uh how can I put this? He's uh dis um, 
he completely like is like disenchanted with like the thought of a George Kaplan. Like, yeah, dude, can I just like go back to my life? Like, can I? Like, he's he's telling James Mason, who is like a, a brilliantly dark mirror to Harry Grant Swagness. Yes. Um, in this movie, um, he's just like, yeah, dude, I'm I'm not this. And and Martin Lando comes in and and uh in the in the scene where Cary Grant's like, yeah, like uh I can show you my license. And then Martin Lando says, yeah, they give you such good ones. Mm. Uh it's just it's it's like it's all these people who, much like the dude in the Big Lebowski, like he's surrounded by <laughs> these archetypes. He's he is you you, you glomp onto the dude because he's living in a world without reason. And yes. and these characters operate without reason. And you bring up the convoluted plot with this movie, and I love that. I love the way that it's approached yeah. because I think having it through the lens of an audience surrogate character like Roger Thornhill, um, who is just so beyond the mystery, even when Leo Jacaro asked him like, Hey, can you be a part of this? And then it takes him finally spelling out, Hey, like Eve Kendall's a double Asian dude. Can you please play this role just for like one more day? Please, 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 please. He, I, I think it's, I, I think it's, sorry, I lost my thought. I think it's really cool because um, it's it's treating the microfilm concept as a MacGuffin, and ultimately it doesn't really matter because no, Hitchcock and it's, it's, watch, it's, they want to have a good time, you know, and the movie knows that. It's Big Lebowski's um, rug. It it really is. It's kind of yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, oh my god, if Roger Thornhill had a Walter Showback. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be absolutely amazing him going on about the um world war ii um it's no you're right i mean it is kind of the ultimate i mean yes he'd already made several um wrong man mistaken identity movies but this one is kind of the ultimate of that the fact that george kaplan doesn't exist and they have you see this boardroom of like i guess cia agents or people are um <laughs> Because Hitchcock's always big thing was you show the bomb. You show, but you don't let the characters know about it. So the tension is coming from the fact that you know something that they don't know. Um, And I think he does it really well. So the fact that you find out pretty early on that George Kaplan has never existed. He's something that was made up to try and um, confuse James Mason. Um, And then they go, well, someone's already been identified as George Kaplan. And they're like, oh, well, we'll see how this goes. It's just amazing. (laughs) They do not is, care. Yeah, and so when he's no, like, they don't care. No, they don't care. And, and, it, and when, no. when Roger when Roger meets <laughs> Leo J. Carroll at, towards the end of like like the end of like the the middle of the movie, and he asks him like, "Hey, dude, can you do us a favor?" He's like, "No, like you clearly don't care about me and like my life. Like, yes. why should I keep doing this?" And you identify with him in that moment because it's like, dude, like, no, these people are fucking dicks, dude. Like, yeah, they <laughs> like, do not <laughs> care if you die or live. And the fact that when they need him, they have to use um, Eve to to do it as as bait is kind of in- incredible. It's like, well, you like her, so can you go and save her? And the movie keeps building up on this. It's like the only one thing that um, Thornhill wants is um, Eve to be safe, Eve to be. The woman mm-hmm. he thinks she is because she's a double agent. You don't know what's going on with her. I mean, that account that when they first meet on the train is amazing. That dialogue is so great. The trout is trouty. Yeah. Yeah. They fall in love. This is that beautiful kind of connection. And so the whole thing is either you betrayed me or no, wait, you didn't betray me. You're in a situation, you're a double agent. Now I have to try and make sure you're okay. And I have to try and save you um because you're in too deep with Mason and, and Landau but it's kind of, but 
the microfiche, what Mason's endgame is, doesn't, what, and even what George Kaplan kind of is, doesn't actually matter. Nothing matters in this movie oh. except for those two. And that's a kind of thing, the thing that's smart about this movie. All the bullshit kind of goes away and all you want is questioning why Eva is wearing high heels trying to climb down Ra- Ra- Mount Rushmore with a handbag. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> this is not well thought out. Um, well, it's, it's, it's and she loses because... them pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, seriously, it's 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 really cool, but you know, kind of like how you how you call this movie a secret masterpiece. I think it's totally secret because mm. uh, the, the thing that I've I've always found so interesting about Eve Kendall as a as a protagonist yeah. is that she's clearly in love. She's she falls in love with Roger Thornhill instantly. Oh yeah, as soon as she lays and, eyes on him, she's like, oh hello, this is Terry Grant. Hello. <laughs> yeah, right. But she also was in love with with Philip Van Dam, and yes. you you get that from that beautiful monologue where um after after that that you know fake assassination like where they're both in the forest yes and they talk about she's finally allowed to be herself in front of him like she she can put away the secret agent and just be eve yeah she says you know i i met philip van damme at a party one night and i saw only his charm yeah and i think that's such an elegantly beautiful piece of dialogue because you get a meet okay like when you first meet her you get because you like Cary Grant as an actor and as a presence and as a as a screen persona. Mm-hmm. Okay, of course she's gonna fall in love with him. Who wouldn't? Yes. But in that moment, she's like, no, like James Mason's. He's he's got it too, you know. Uh, and and she's the type of woman who says again in the monologue, like later on, you know, like uh, you know, I a life hasn't been kind to me. And you get the feeling in the movie, not deliberately not being you know that deep. You get the feeling that this woman has been around the block and hasn't seen a lot of great, great opportunity. And so she took, she took upon being a double agent um, as that, you know, if this was a Mission Impossible movie, she would be, you know, she would be the, uh, uh, I, I think it's called the fake, fake out opponent or something yes, like that. Yes, the, yeah. the, Hen- the Henry Cavill type, Yes. you know, um, where you think they're one thing and, they, and the, the character happens to be something else. And I like how Hitchcock preserves that romance uh, that he was clearly inclined with through so much of his career. We talked about Notorious, you know, Virgo is a, romantic, yeah. uh, a dark romantic film. Mm. You know, to, to Catch a Thief is his romantic inclinations just set a free and is magical in its own right. But with this movie, romance really is the reason why you stick to it, why you, you're driven to follow Roger through all of his crazy set pieces and all of the ridiculous happenstances like not only do you identify with him because he is a matinee idol screen you know presence mm. who's putting that image away to be a relatable guy for for these two hours but he's also falling in love with and 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 trying to save someone who's clearly not who who, who has been damaged before and is surrounded by by unscrupulous you know bad guys and i think it is such a really cool it's such a really cool uh, identifiable humanity that you don't get a lot in a lot of today's action movies. Um, no, you I, I don't, think yeah. I think they try, I, but they haven't quite. Yeah, there's a reason why I think that happens, but that's my own theory. <laughs> <laughs> true, true that, true that. Um, yeah, no, and goodness, and I, 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 I'm surprised we haven't even brought up the score because the score oh is, my god. is one of my favorites. Like Bernard. Uh, <laughs> he did it again. <laughs> yeah, no, Bernard Herman is 
a just a boss screenwriter. You know, he brought Citizen Kane, which is one of his his best his best scores. Taxi Driver, which uh, he um, died upon know. delivering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was about, I was just about to ask you if that was his last score because it's it so it's so iconic. Legend has it is that he delivered it to Scorsese and goes, "Here it is," and then a few days later passed away. Like that was wow. his piss off. I mean, I'm pretty sure he did Psycho as well. I mean, he's the one who came up with the oh, yeah. with the strings, um, which again, that just that score just changed horror movies just in general. Oh, forever, um, yeah. It's kind of no, you've got all the best people kind of working on this movie. And I think the casting is really smart because the plot is that convoluted. And so I think um, Hitchcock knew that he needed someone like a Cary Grant. I think Jimmy Stewart really wanted this role, but I don't think he would have been completely right. Um, not that Jimmy Stewart isn't like the charming as all hell. I just think you needed that instant. I, okay, I see what this is um, to carry you through. I think what it's it is. All about the casting, honestly, yeah. It's all about the casting. I think what it is too with Jimmy Stewart. I think uh, there was a darkness to him that Ooh, directors yes. like Hitchcock and Anthony Mann really dug out. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, and and you even see that in a bit of like the Capper ones he did. Like oh. uh, it's one of life. He's you know, so angry like, in that movie. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 you like Jimmy Stewart because he sells more relatable emotions, whereas Cary Grant is the is the more uh they both did comedies i can't say he was the more lighter version of that but Cary grant was the more aspirational everyman he was the man you want who us men want to be exactly and a lot of women were found very attractive and maybe wanted to be with that old kind of cl cliche line but it's kind of, it's this amazing kind of thing i mean also it's not just Cary grant it's um eva marie saint it is james yes. mason who is also really charming, but also has that darkness. I mean, I am such a huge James Mason fan because he plays these really dark, difficult, prickly characters, but yet is charming while he does it. Um, and then you've got Martin Landau, who's like a weird goose in the corner, who's being absolutely, I mean, he steals every scene he's in yes. by just standing there. He's amazing. So you've kind of got all these kind of elements kind of fitting together. And I love um, Eve's, Eve's character because you can tell she's kind of put upon. She met this guy at a party. She fell for him because it's friggin' James Mason. And then she finds out, oh, wait, he's a Bond villain. And now I'm caught. <laughs> and now this um, intelligence group knows he's a Bond villain and knows I'm dating him. And now they're putting upon me to do this under double agent kind of thing. And that's what you get the sense, especially when she says, oh, I met him at a party. I like fell for his charm that's what that is and you can tell there's this woman who's stuck in a situation she's not allowed to get out of until she meets carrie grant who's like screw this we're leaving um you're who's not the male version of, of that like he's a put-upon hero who exactly is, is in, a, in an extraordinary situation yeah he got mistaken just yeah. on your yeah yeah he got mistaken as george kaplan and then this intelligent agent's like well we'll see how this goes um and they don't <laughs> care so you've got these two people who are just in this kind of really kind of extraordinary situation who are just wanting to get out of it and that's again you said that before you buy into the romance of it um and without that you need it because you've got all this crazy stuff being thrown at you that pushes you along with this insane plot that doesn't actually matter at the end of it like a lot of noir a lot like a lot of action it's just there to do things but you do get that core romance at the end and when he says oh you've been married twice yeah because they thought i had too much of a boring life and they're hanging off mount rushmore is kind of 
the perfect kind of moment. The way she laughs at it, like yeah. in such an entire situation, is so fun. It's and, so cute. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, and two, you brought up the villains earlier, and I really want to talk about those those oh, guys yes. specifically because uh, it's ironic that Martin Landau is in this movie, and this is known as kind of pre James Bond because he's literally in the '60s Mission Impossible show. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I was thinking about this movie today, uh, this morning when I woke up, cause I was just like, you know, the way that Hitchcock and Lehman, Hitchcock especially was like very, uh, very meticulous with his storyboarding. Like he, mm. he story, he had these sequences in mind before he even, before the script of this movie was yeah. even crafted. And that's very much how a lot of Mission Impossible movies are made. Uh, if not all of them is, is mm. that, okay, what crazy thing can Tom Cruise do? How do uh, we try and kill Tom Cruise? <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's how and that's how they string movies together. Like each of those movies, mm. um, as much as the, the quality is is consistent throughout that series, um, each of those movies was was kind of a mess upon making them because they just didn't know the full story upon pre-production. Uh, and and North by Northwest isn't wasn't necessarily a mess while making it, but. Um, but it's definitely definitely has that DNA, and I bring up Martin Landau, and because I love him in this movie, oh, uh, so I love him in, in Ed Wood. He's so oh, good. Deserved um, Oscar, I will just say that he was. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing, and uh, in this movie, I love him because he uh, he really wanted to. I don't know if it was him. I don't know if it was the screenwriter or what, but like he's playing this role as if he's you know a gay character, and I, I think it's cool coming off of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where we have the, the first openly gay character in an action movie, Val Kilmer. Yes. And then this movie, one of the original action movies where this character, you know, since old movies were operating in all subtext, was a gay henchman. Um, it makes to a fascinating dynamic um, with, upon rewatching, you know, because you don't really see a lot of James Mason and Landau in this movie. Mason has third billing, you know, he's mm. on the all the, the DVD covers and stuff, mm. but or his name is, but like he, you don't really see a lot of Mason in this movie, but you feel the presence of villainy all around them. And I think part of that is how Lehman wisely divides the villainy. And even though you do see that in, of course, uh, the action movies later on that are influenced by this, mm -hmm. I love how in this movie, um, Harry Grant's main opposition is James Mason. Okay, someone who is arguably just as handsome, someone yes. who's arguably just as charming, mm -hmm. someone who you can't see them get their hands dirty. Mm. And, and if you did, it just wouldn't feel right. No. Versus Martin Landau, who I love him in this movie because he's playing that guilted lover who feels kind of weird out that, you know, okay, why are you doing so much stuff for Eve? Let me show you that. <laughs> let me, let me give you, let me give you a shot of this gun and, and let you know that she's full of shit, dude. Come yes. on. Yes. And, and he doesn't really commit a lot of the, the violence of this movie that's left to the, the tertiary henchmen. Yes. Uh, those, he, those two guys. He's, yeah, you know. he's, he's sticking him on and kind of points, but he kind of, um, you're right, because a lot of coded gay henchmen aren't exactly a new thing. But what I love about the Landau character is you can kind of see the jilted lover kind of thing. It's like he's actually hurting. He's obviously very much um, in love, whatever, or just kind of devoted to Mason, who is unfortunately not going to be able to go there with him. And so he's kind of looking at Eve going, oh, I hate you so much. Um, and it's kind of got that interesting dynamic in there that doesn't feel kind of as, oh, yeah, they're doing that because it's a stereotype kind of thing. It doesn't feel that way, which is I, which I really do love about this movie. But it reminds me, um, have you seen Birds of Prey, the um, Harley Quinn movie? 
Oh, yes, I have. Yeah, the Ewan, Ewan McGregor and Christopher, oh, what's his name? Um, oh. His it reminds me of that relationship so much because they are obviously very much together. I That is my reading of that movie, <laughs> that this is very much their thing. But the looks that they give each other are so similar to what Mason and Landau give. It's kind of incredible, but they make it much more obvious and much more... Um, I mean, Christopher has these amazingly big brown eyes, and just the way he looks up at you and McGregor is just like, oh yeah, I, I I know I know what's going on here, um, and I love it. I didn't, um, I didn't yeah. think about that, but yeah, no, that that's totally right because I yeah. love I love you McGregor in that movie as well. Yes. Like he's he's having a blast he's as that. So over, much fun. He's, yeah, <laughs> having so much fun as like the most comically inaccurate black mass I've ever seen, but. I love that about that movie so much. And yeah. um, it's funny because where my brain went to, um, as you were talking about kind of the henchman, this is the complete opposite of, of the openly gay kind of villain. But um, in, in Fast and Furious, the very first one, um, I love uh, Vince and kind of his arc throughout the first one in the fifth movie, where Vince goes from, you know, really hating Paul Walker. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, at first it's like, okay, why are you trying to hit on me to do like, I, I like her, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and he senses, I feel like he, I've always felt like he senses that Brian O'Connor is, is the Jimbo of the thing where, you know, he's kind of going to kind of fuck up the operation. Whereas yes. in the fifth movie, you know, Vince is, Vince has to tell Dom, you know, for his exile, like, dude, I told you from the get go, I told you in the first movie that this guy was a cop. You didn't yes. listen. Look what yes. it's gotten you. So uh, I just, I, I think, yeah, you definitely see pieces of Landau in different ways um, in, in, in other movies. So yeah. You definitely do. And I kind of, yeah, because I've always seen Fast and Furious as the romance between Paul Walker and um, Vince, <laughs> and uh, no, Vince one, um, and Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. Um, just because I love how action movies are going to the kind of, the showing this kind of masculinity, but they're also showing it as like, no, there's, these emotional connections you can have with um, other men. And that is very important to your life. And whether it is a great friendship, a romance or an actual sexual relationship, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's about that connection. Um, so that's, I've always seen it. But when you brought up that point, I'm like, oh yes, he is. He's the jealous lover. That is absolutely what he is. That is absolutely. Yeah. Um, and they bring him back in five going, yeah, I told you. <laughs> you didn't listen to me. You dumped me. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally it's, it's, yeah, that whole, that whole saga is, is bromance 2.0 for sure. And, um, and it, it's cool because um, in, in this movie, um, I think, you know, I keep talking about Cary Grant's like demeanor, like his persona. And I think Hitchcock weaponized that better mm -hmm. than a lot of filmmakers that I've seen um, uh, from, from movies of this type. And, and it's funny that people, like after this movie came out, like, uh, I don't know if it was the Broccoli's or, or another produ production team, but they were like, hey dude, can you, uh, do you wanna make, a, do you wanna adapt a, do you wanna adapt a James Bond novel? He was like, why would I do that? Like I've already made it. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting because, you know, you know, like this is, by the time this episode comes out, No Time to Die, you know, is already, you know, it's, it's already had quite a life in theaters at this point. Mm. Um, and I bring that movie up because so much of that movie and so much of the more sentimental James Bond that we've become accustomed to as an audience in this generation. Um, I just, I feel like you see bits of that through Cary Grant's romantic performances throughout his career, throughout his screwball comedies, throughout his spy films, yeah. throughout his thrillers. And I just feel like 
I tried to imagine Cary Grant playing James Bond. Like a lot of people have said that on Twitter. Mm. And I just, I don't see it. Like, I'm not sure how you feel about that. And I'd be curious to know your thoughts because I feel like so much of the iconic Bond is hyper-masculine, you know? Yes. The alpha male, the swinging dick in a room. And Cary Grant has that swinging dick energy in certain scenes, but he, you I feel like the appeal of Cary Grant for everyone, men and women and everyone in between, mm. is the fact that he wasn't afraid to play the fool. And and yeah, that, no, that's... No, there's a gentle... No, I don't think I could see Cary Grant being a Bond because I think there is the sensitivity to Cary Grant's performances, even in his more darker roles. I mean, go back to Notorious. This is a about a man who has to prostitute out the woman he loves for his job and then realizes, no, I need to get her out of this situation. Um, yeah. But it's kind of, no, there's a sensitivity, I think, to Cary Grant's persona or his, his, his acting style that I just don't think you could do with Bond. I think they try it a little bit and as much, and I do love No Time to Die because I think it really goes into that, but he's still the alpha male. He's still James Bond. And that is still yeah. the, he's, it's about pure masculinity and the, the invulnerability of that masculinity, which is James Bond. Grant is not. And when you look back at his career, when his first he was starting to come up in Hollywood, he was working, he was kind of the straight man to the likes of Mae West and Marlene Dietrich, um, especially Mae yeah. West. And so he kind of came up in this kind of thing of sheer, he was not the spotlight in the room. That was Mae West. Mae West was coming in like a force of hurricane. She was hitting on Cary Grant because he was freaking Cary Grant. Um, and that's kind of, and you can kind of see that kind of style, even though he became more Cary Grant as the movies went on, there's still that dynamic of him knowing that he has to have a connection with the person he's with and let them act off. He's, he's letting them act off him, which is why I think you get kind of things like charade where an Audrey Hepburn could take Cary Grant in the charm department in that movie, but you can kind of see him giving her space as well which is a very gentlemanly thing to yeah, do. And I think yeah. it's just because the movies he was when he came up. I mean, you don't take the spotlight away from Marlena Dietrich and you certainly don't do it with Mae West. So no. it's well, both <laughs> of them, they, they would hurt you like physically. Um, and I think- Yeah, we keep talking about the alpha male, but those are literally alpha females. Like those are- Yeah. Like, so he came up- and West. Exactly. Yeah, they, yeah. Were the, they were alphas in the room. You do not take away the spotlight. And I think he took that throughout his- movie I mean he's worked with Catherine Hepburn which he definitely knew when to come in and do his Cary Grant thing but he also knew to give her he didn't let her but he kind of knew the dynamic is what I'm trying to say and this is with Eva, Eva Larry Saint this is with Audrey Hepburn this is with all his co-stars Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly he knew when he kind of knew how to work with them and so every single time he's in a movie he has a female counterpart who you love just as much as he does, as, as much as him. And Bond doesn't do that at all. It is not that kind of shared <laughs> dynamic. Um, and a lot of alpha male ones kind of don't, but the trick with Cary Grant is alpha males are looking at him and going, I like him. He's he's great. This He's, he's charming as all hell. Because he is, but he's got this dynamic where he knows how to share the charm or let the other person just be just as charm as he is. I mean, he worked with some amazing beautiful strong-willed woman on set so he kind of knows how to fit in with it and I think in any other movie the Eva character or Eve character would have been much more sidelined um I think if it was any other actor yeah. other than Cary Grant um not that she well, I think an amazing performance I just think 
the persona just wouldn't have worked and which is why yeah so this is why I think he's absolutely amazing because he's such a giving actor like he doesn't want anyone to be the only spotlight in the room which is which is why I'll always love him yeah there's there's a uh I, I think acting is definitely a magic trick where you yeah. know and and I, I've always been especially the more I the older I get the more movies I watch the more I appreciate the subtle performances as opposed to the showy you know uh, yes. I love these guys, keep yeah. in mind, but Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, like the Jared Leto's of everything where, <laughs> you you know, when you watch a Jared Leto performance, you know, you're about to watch a show. Oh, you know, I heard I, the I, most amazing term of Jared Leto keeps taking acting pills. And I'm like going, that is exactly <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely what it seems like. And I think we, we, we tend to undervalue the guys. Uh, this, this whole episode is me defending mm. artists, I guess. Uh, this is undervalued, this is underrated, this is underappreciated. Mm. But no, um, I think Grant has that that quality to him where, you know, you you it's hard to, it's definitely hard to see how someone is such a great actor when they're so good at, at, at giving to other actors and making themselves and other actors look better by extension. Mm. And yes. um, and you you even see that with um, the mom character in this movie with Hitchcock and moms, such a, such a thing uh and <laughs> jesse norris landis in this he movie. always had yeah hitchcock and mother issues we just need to deal with that i mean whatever was going on he had mother issues and i love the fact that there's always this mother his mother is great i by the way i can't remember the actress yeah. name my head i didn't write it down but she is incredible i mean the way uh, she, jesse oh. norris landis. <laughs> yes sorry you did say <laughs> yeah 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 no she's she's so good i mean i mean uh just the moment when uh he's bringing uh her and the cops to uh 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 the the townsend place yes. and uh and he's like yeah the bourbon was in there and then then they open the cabinet and it's books and she's like yeah i remember we used to come in bottles like i just love her verbal sparring with her son oh, because you get the feeling like from the move the moment the movie begins that he mentions his mom like hey like he loves his mom yes. you know that makes me like him, even though he did such a shitty thing. But, you know, like the way that he communicates with Cary Grant, not only does it add comedy to an already incredibly funny film, but you really get the sense, okay, like this is clearly the son of this woman. The fact that she has this witty repartee with, with the people around her. You're not really trying to kill my son, are you? Like, yes. just it, she's, she's not in the movie a lot but whenever she's on she chews that screenery in the same that screenery jesus the screen and she the same could be said for any of the cast members oh it's it's absolutely um amazing it's um yeah she's amazing and this movie is hilarious i mean Cary grant when he's drunk and at this police station is one of the great the fact that he keeps trying to fall asleep on just anything in the room whether it's a cop's chest or a desk <laughs> is incredible and then he's calling his mother saying you need to come bail, bail me out and she's um just giving him shit on the phone it's incredible um like where am i yes like three times i mean that is some amazing drunk acting and <laughs> it's it's oh it's so and she's great i mean First of all, she doesn't believe him. Like she's even sitting there in court and he's like, I'm an upstanding citizen. No, really? <laughs> um, and she's heckling <laughs> him from the freaking courtroom. Um, but when he goes to George Kaplan's hotel and then she kind of realized, oh, something's actually weird's happening here. Um, and she's kind of then, okay, my son isn't just being annoying and trying to get himself out of trouble. Something is actually going on. Okay, yeah. so then I'm going to help him. Um, you're right. It's a really great relationship actually between the two because 
she is throwing shit at him left, right, and center until she knows that, oh, wait, something weird is happening. And she's hilarious. Oh, my, it's so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she's she's so good. And uh, goodness, I, I have to ask you, um, um, like, what is your favorite set piece in North by Northwest? Because there's so many iconic moments. Or I guess, like, what's your favorite scene? And, like, do you have a favorite sequence, I guess? Uh, it's got to be the Rushmore. I love that actually no it's the when they're in when carrie uh uh roger sneaks back into the house when he's trying to get um yes when he figures when he when he knows that they he's trying to talk to her say don't get on the plane it's going to be bad and then he finds out that they know and he's got to get that note to her so the the matchbox uh because she knows what kind of matchsticks he has and just to say they're on to you do not get on that plane um it's an amazing sequence yeah yeah that that scene works because that's classic hitchcock like like so much of this movie feels like hitchcock conventions yes you could argue that doesn't feel as dark as a hitchcock film but that whole sequence is brilliant because it's like yeah no the ball is finally in Cary grant's court he's now on to the the bad guys for the for one of the first times in the whole movie yes you know he's he's finally got up like he's finally like circumvented uh the the u.s government agents mm. and he now has the agency to finally get eve kendall out of the situation and and be happy with her and yeah that whole lead up to the mount rushmore bit is uh is brilliant as is the actual round mount rushmore bit uh, oh yeah just yeah. when you're first watching it and because you know they're at rapid city and there's of course mount rushmore and it's mount rushmore but when you realize they're actually gonna have to crawl down <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I'm just like, no, you'll die. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, and it's kind of this incredible sequence. But oh, I love back going back to the house is when the the maid, or oh, she's actually Mason's wife. It's the, the relationships get very confusing in this movie. She yeah, sees, they are. Yeah. He sees Cary Grant in the reflection in the TV, which I love. And mm-hmm. the fact that she again tries to use the prop uh, blank gun that Eve used to pretend shoot Cary Grant. It that gun keeps coming up again. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's pure Hitchcock. And when you're watching it for a first time, you've already seen this. Like, I know, yep, I know this tricks, but then you watch it again and you actually realize what he's doing. You're like, okay, I applaud. I applaud you, Hitchcock. Yep, you're doing, yes, this is this is amazing stuff. And then you get to that last action sequence of them climbing down Mount Rushmore. And it's just, it's a perfect ending um, because it is, it's, it is, it's, it's it's outlandish in a way that you don't know how these people, these characters are surviving. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of inevitable that they were going to start cl- trying to climb down this friggin' mountain. <laughs> well, it's funny because Cary Grant, uh, I think during, uh, whenever he was hired on for this, he was like, what does, what does the title mean North by Northwest? Yes. And Hitchcock was like, well, it's not a direction, you know, the whole movie's fantasy. And the, the ending, much like the ending of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where Harry becomes a he becomes a full-on action hero. Yes. You know, yes. same day. That's what Roger becomes. He's still in character, but Roger, by the skin of his teeth and by his strength of will and the fact that he has this other incredible person beside him finally mm-hmm. helping him through this, you know, and they're helping each other, they really are becoming the fantasy. And the movie is letting you have fun with the fantasy, just being like, yeah, you know, it's, it's cool to like this. You know, it's yeah. cool that, they're finally getting one up on the bad guys and people are falling to their death and that kind of thing. In fact, I love Landau's last scene 
in this movie. It's one of my favorite villain deaths ever. Yes. Because yes. He, he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't die at the hands of Grant or Saint. You know, nope. he dies, he dies at the hands of Leah Jucaro, just kind of coming in as um not not quite Deus Ex Machina. You know, you you get the feeling that they figure out things and they happen to collide at the end. Yeah. Because the whole movie's a fantasy, but he's evil until the very, very end of his life. I and mean, I yeah. is, the fact that Kerry Grant is saying, help me. And then it just goes, stands on his hand and just like, you asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like watching this again, I was just like, dude, like you're, you're such a, you're such a douche. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you're evil until the very end. Yes. And, you, and, we and you're not even sure if he knows if he's going to survive what's going on. And then finally the gunshot happens. He falls to his death um you know and james mason has that great line you know that's not really sporting using real bullets yes uh i love that so much oh. love that it's yeah this movie is just great and that final sequence is just incredible because by then you've been on this kind of forward propulsion kind of thing and then all of a sudden you get these kind of moments and it goes from pure hitchcockian kind of just set piece to this amazing action set piece and to be sitting there in a theater and watching it on you know a big bright tv screen is kind of amazing because it's just it's everything about this movie is cool i mean his gray suit and yeah i can see why this gray suit keeps popping up popping up because Cary grant just looks amazing in it and then that you have um the 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 waiting is it going to get there is she going to get on the plane are they is she going to survive this mountain land out are they yeah, gonna, i mean yeah. he's standing on his thing i mean it's you know everyone's hanging off a mountain and it's it's just this everything kind of is done in the exact way it's meant to be i mean this is hitchcock going yeah i know exactly what effect this is going to have on the audience i already know um i'm not going to make you uncomfortable i'm going to make you take you safely through this it's going to be but it's going to be fun you're just going to be eating your popcorn going oh my god this is amazing not like vertigo we're like what is james stewart doing and i'm scared um it's which this movie this movie shares the same cinematographer as vertigo yeah. um robert burks gorgeous who, who lights yeah. Lights the hell out of both of these movies. I, yeah. I love the look and I love how different visually these movies are. And that's something that who that I really noticed on, upon this viewing is because Vertigo is shot, like you said earlier, with a lot of greens, a lot of reds. Mm. Um, um, it's shot very dreamlike yes. to where you get you really get inside the visions of this voyeuristic visage that that uh that uh Stewart's character is projecting yeah and uh this movie is it's shot in a way where everything has so much I've always said that I feel like spy movies need to have a personality um I feel like I feel like spy movies are the bad ones are bad and a lot are partially because they lack a personality, mm. which North by Northwest has in spades, you know, um, you know, like every scene, every sequence looks very different. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, there's not a, there's not a film noir or like a chiaroscuro lighting to the, the, uh, that whole uh, Van Damme layer sequence at the end. Like it's, it's, it's shot in a way where you can see most of the trees and stuff surrounding it. And it's shot in a way where it gives you a sense of geography and so many of the, of the blocking, uh, where, yes. especially when both the characters are talking and you differ that from the train scene where Roger meets Eve and, uh, the way that the camera pans after, you know, he stays in her hotel room from that, uh, that corridor of the, of the, of the train to, uh, 
Van Damme and, and Landau mm. uh, being in the very next scene. That whole pan is, is I think, amazing. And the movie's filled with those. And I think without competent cinematography and without the, the visual voice, I think, to me, that's really what makes this movie pop. Like, not just visually, but also tonally is how, uh, how varied a lot of the, the shots and the colors are. No, I think you're right. I think spy movies rely on cinematography, camera moves, kind of the blocking more so than a lot of other action movies. I mean, you can go for, say, something like um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which admittedly is a very brown movie, um, just in terms of the <laughs> amount of beige that's going on in there. But because just the of the way that uh, Gary Oldman has different glasses or just kind of the way that the, the things are blocked with these kind of very 70s British men um, that has, it does have a personality. And then going back to James Bond with Skyfall, which I just recently rewatched again. I mean, God, my God, Roger Brimming. Deakins. Brimming I mean, personality. Oh, it's got personality in spades, like North by Northwest. And it's mainly because of Roger Deakins and just that fight sequence in Shanghai um, to the- Oh yeah, the fighting I mean, silhouettes. Yeah. Uh, the fighting silhouettes, yeah. which is something that has come, this, this is, he didn't invent that. I mean, you can go back through Japanese uh, to the sixties and 40 to see stuff like that, but the way he uses it with the lights and um, and then the fire in the distance in when uh, Silver's going after the actual Skyfall, the, the manor. Um, it's just got all manners of personality. And yeah, you need personality because spies don't have a personality. That's the whole point. So you need everything That's else to point, kind of, yeah. yeah. Even Roger Thornhill's like going, who am I? Am I Roger Kaplan or am I Roger Thornhill? I don't know. And he's got personality for days, but it's kind of, it's an existential crisis. So you need everything else around him to make, be, have personality. So yes, I, I completely agree with that. Well, uh, what, what I was going to talk about with Skyfall, just really quick, this is kind of a, I know we're kind of in the sidebar. <laughs> but, sidebar, please. But, well, I think the, the cool thing about, about that is um, uh, the, the way Skyfall is shot, I find very interesting in context of the other Daniel Craig movies, because mm. it's kind of visually, it's the beginning of the series kind of taking the ball back from Jason Bourne. Yes. Um, a lot of, a lot of Casino Royale is a, uh, partially thanks to Martin Campbell being a, a, a truly bomb action director, a lot of it is using, utilizing the Jason Bourne level of brutality and a lot of the quick cutting. Yeah. But he, Campbell is still very classical in terms of how he frames action. Mm. And uh, especially looking at Mass of Zorro. And so Casino Royale has a lot of that in camera action, but the action is still very, very boring. And of course, Quantum goes like all over the place with the yes. edits you know <laughs> yeah which a lot of people have have talked about already mm. but then you get to skyfall where everything is fluid again and mm. you get the sense that mendez you definitely get even though he's never filmed action of that scale before he really knows how to block and, and frame shots and he really with that silhouette sequence you just talked about um it's the first it's one of the first times in that whole movie um, in, in, or after the opening sequence where you see, okay, this is a reminder, okay, Bond can still kick ass, Bond yes. is still adept at the fisticuffs, and by making it silhouettes instead of just another, yet another action scene, um, you're allowed to just look at the craft of, of how the pugilism is, is coming into play, and I think that that aspect of Skyfall is very underrated and something that, um, and something that, yeah, I think when when you have filmmakers, when you have people like a Hitchcock or a Mendez, 
who work with brilliant cinematographers like Robert Burks, you're able to get real visual magic. And especially when you're making a popcorn movie like this, that's something that I kind of miss. Like I kind of miss that from, uh, uh, I mean, as much as, as big of a fan as I am of, of both Tom Holland Spider-Man movies, I do miss that from mm. the, the Sam Raimi films uh, is that is that Bill Popeness of them. Yeah. Um, God, Bill Pope yeah. is amazing. Um, no, I think, hmm, actually, no, I think spy movies definitely need that, But because I, I think um, with J D Craig's era of James Bond, how the cinematography and the director mattered before James Bond was always in-house. And I don't think that's anything uh, wrong with that, but I think um, but I think with Daniel Craig, so Barbara Broccoli suddenly realized, oh, if we make these actual movie movies, then they're going to kind of have their own flavor. Now, James Bond has always been influenced by what has happened before. That's always just been the way since I think after the um, Connery Bonds. But yeah, I think when you get Roger Deakins in, he gives it a personality. And I think you're right going into Spider-Man. As much as I love Tom Holland's Spider-Man, it just doesn't have the personality of Raimi. And Raimi yeah. gives his movies so much personality. And when you have action movies with personality it makes them so much better and now because i just rewatched the original spider-man um 2002 nice nice that movie has personality for day that has got so much personality and it's not just the toby Maguire. it's not just kirsten dunce it's not just i always forget james franco's in that movie um it's <laughs> daniel god born defoe but everything around those guys is personality and this is again north by northwest you have a very hitchcockian personality because it's hitchcock going i'm gonna make you a hitchcock movie but you also have bernard hart you have um uh bernard score you also Our have Herman, yeah, that's the yeah. cinematographer you also have the way this movie's blocked shot you just have martin landau being a weirdo it's just <laughs> i god i love i seriously love him in this movie i forgot that he was in this movie when i saw him i was so happy and then he just was just i'm like you're being weird and i love it um yeah. you're an awkward boy who fell in love with the wrong boy and now you're making all the wrong decisions and i love it um <laughs> you are evil to the end because you fell in love with the wrong boy it's great um it's yeah it's it, you need personality and 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 yeah as mike scott has mentioned he loves when the directors take a swing this is Hitchcock kind of taking a swing as in I'm going to make my ultimate, ultimate movie. Hang on, because you're going to have fun. I'm already a master of this. So I know what's going on. And he knows that personality is needed. Um, just like a lot of act the great action movies have personality in kind of entwined into the movie. And that's you know what this love is. Them. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Like this is, this is Hitchcock's nice guys. It is. This is his movie where... <laughs> To tie both these movies together, like this movie is Hitchcock going, I'm going to take everything I've played around with gradually in my career, some of which so I've gone so far into that I've made masterpieces out of those inklings. Yeah. And I'm just going to do a full on remix. Yes. You know, like it, 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 it is that, that thing. And it's something that Raimi does a lot. James Cameron, I would argue, does that a lot. Oh, he does it a uh, lot. I mean, Avatar is his greatest set. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, literally, yeah, it, it totally is. And and I, I think there's there's a dev. I mean, Spielberg, you know, he revisited the the sound of the car going down finally from Duel, his first film. You, you know, he revisited that sound. The shark pulls up in Jaws, and you hear that sound. Jurassic Park. So yeah. it's all of these great filmmakers. They go back to the well, and I really do respect that you know and and 
And I, I will forever, for, through all of his, his, uh, his uh, very interesting kind of, uh, whatever you, you, you feel about his personal life, whatever you can say or pull from, you know, that, that's teach their own. But I think as an artist, I think, it sounds cliche to say it, but Hitchcock really is very important to me. And, and this movie is the, the quintessence of that. As much as he's made more challenging films, deeper films, more ambitious fare uh, during his heyday, and uh, I'll never quite argue that it's his best film. I do think that's one of his best. And uh, I'm super thrilled that we got to give this its proper due. And uh, I'm happy that upon revisiting it, you really, really took to it. No, it's like Hitchcock. Yeah, whatever you, okay, Hitchcock is Hitchcock, but he's one of my favorite directors um, because I think he would, no matter what era of his career is in, he's doing a swing. What I love about North by Northwest, it feels like he's a composer. But he has all these, he's just, and he's, everything is pitch perfect. Yeah. Like the strings are working, the brass is working, everything's kind of working. And it's kind of this classical song, which you know inside and out, but it's been doing so well that you're just like going, yes, this is perfect. And I think that's why North by Northwest, even though probably not his most dangerous, not his most transgressive, not his most kind of ambitious movie, is doing all these things he knows he can do really well. And he knows that he's just going to make, he's doing it I always sort of said this is the before I kind of rewatched it I said oh this is the one he made for the studio so he can make Psycho or to apologize for um, Vertigo I think that's in it but I think he's still enjoys making movies so I think he's like going yeah Yeah. I'm gonna have the scene where a dust cropper flies down and starts shooting at um, Cary Grant and it's gonna be awesome and you have this desolate scene and the way he builds up to it is amazing like the guy who comes to get on the bus and he's like looking at it going are you are you Kaplan, what, what's happening? Um, and he goes, oh, that's weird. The, there's no crops. Why is, that, why is that plane there? And gets on the bus and goes away. And then it hits and it keeps going. And he knows, yeah, it's again, it's like this orchestra. He knows kind of when to let the strings go or the bass or the kind of whatever. And it's kind of incredible to watch because it's kind of, every time I watch multiple movies over Hitchcock, I notice the filmmaking. And that's kind of when I get excited about it. Because Hitchcock is, that's when he's having fun with it. It's not necessarily the performances. I think it's more, I think he just knew how to cast really well. So they would just do their job. But I think also he was more interested in where do I put the camera here? Because yeah, you said he um, he storyboarded all of it. And it shows because he's getting excited about certain shots and certain moments and build up and, and, and climax and all that kind of thing. And that's why I think this is a secret masterpiece is because you don't necessarily notice that the first time you're watching it because you're too busy invested in Cary Grant and um, Eva Marie Saint. So it's not, he, and he does this over and over and over again with all his movies. Um, the first time you I watched it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I, sorry. Oh, sorry. The first time I watched Notorious, I didn't realize how dark it was. Yes. I knew that he was selling his girlfriend <laughs> into prostitution with Claude Rains as a double agent, but I didn't, kind of then you watch it again you're like oh god that's what this actually movie is about it's not yeah you kind of you when you notice the filmmaking and what he's doing that's when everything comes alive and that's why he's kind of always kind of consistently making these secret masterpieces and it's 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 wonderful you really see the horror in that crop duster scene like the the scene the, the moments before the crop duster like comes around because the mm. way that Hitchcock treats it he treats it as if it's like one of the birds mm. you know like he treats it like it's a monster and 
the magic trick in which he ties together the projection methods with Cary Grant falling down and the dodging the bullets mm. and going around that suit, like it really does. There's a few moments up close where watching it in HD in 2021 where it feels a little dated, but the way it's executed, especially with the preamble before that, where, oh, yeah, like he, talk, it, he yeah. talks that, it, 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 it's uncomfortably long. Like yes. that sequence where he's just waiting for, for a ride and he looks at that guy and, and goes up to him and asks him if he's George Kaplan. Most modern filmmakers would not have that sparing level of suspense before an action scene. And again, you know, looking at Spielberg, like that's something that uh, you see a little bit of in Jurassic Park. Uh, oh, before a lot yes. of the set pieces, yeah. there's these uncomfortable, oh, snap, like what is this thing? Like what was this earthquake around me? Like what's going on? Yeah. And versus, you know, a Jurassic World, which no offense to anyone who enjoys those, but um, there's a lot of just visibly very CGI dinosaurs. Like there's not a lot of waiting. There's not a lot of waiting room. No, there's no waiting. That's yeah, kind of the and- thing with, especially the first Jurassic World, is there's no waiting. Um, and I can kind of see why he did that because he's trying to, some reason that movie's trying to say dinosaurs are boring. I'm like, no, no universe. Dinosaurs are never boring. Stop it. Um, that, yeah. that is, no, no. I mean, have you seen the size of these things? Um, it's kind of that thing. There's no waiting. And I think if North by Northwest didn't have that preamble before you get the crop duster, you would notice more that Jim Carrey, uh, not Jim Carrey, Cary Grant is just running around <laughs> on a set in fake. Very different movie. Very different. Oh my <laughs> God, it'd be dumber and dumber. Um, it's again, kind of North by North, oh, but Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> Cary Grant wandering around on a set in fake corn step in, in a corn fake cornfield that's what all you would notice but because um you're so invested because watching in hd those corn look very fake um but watching um <laughs> but watching but getting that preamble and getting him waiting on that very barren dirt road seeing that other guy then talking about that thing guy and then that you're seeing the plane like way before in the conversation that it's just doing its thing and then for that guy to say that's weird there's no crops. Why are they crop dusting? And then to him to get on the bus, then it hits. And then it's like, oh, shit, now it's going to happen. And it does. And so, yeah, and you're right. Spielberg does this all the time. He makes you wait for that moment. I mean, Jaws, even though it's because the shark broke, but he gives you that perfect thing of you're going to wait for the shark. We're going to make you give you this kind of sense of confusion and wonder and not sure what's happening. Then you see poor Quint get bitten in half. And this is kind of the same pattern. It's It works really well. And um, you can see that That's in all good thing. action movies. All good action yeah. movies have that preamble before it hits because you're just waiting and it goes on for an uncomfortable amount of time before that plane hits. I mean, I because it's a famous scene, so you keep waiting for it. I'm like, oh, nope, nope, still waiting. Still, oh, and now it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's the best thing that can ever happen to a filmmaker is, is that limitation because yes. the shark breaking in Jaws forced Spielberg to do the Luton thing and, and forced him to be like, okay, uh, let's uh let's play with the suspense of this thing like we can let's establish early on this thing exists yes and we're going to play with the the audience and the characters uh expectations of as to where the shark is at any point in time and you see that in north northwest especially with the mount rushmore bit going back to that just very briefly you know they couldn't go to the actual mount rushmore so they built matte paintings and models and combined it the two and uh it makes for a very uh, of its time, but still beautiful 
glossy, fantastical action climax that I mean, this movie came out 62 years ago mm. and yet still gets your get your blood boiling, you know, when that when those scenes come up. Yeah, when you realize you're at Mount Rushmore at the end, when you've run out of the house, they're running through the forest. Um, and though I was surprised, cue. yeah, the music cues, and then you suddenly, though I love the part when they're going trying to get out of the gate, they can't open the gate. I'm like going in a modern action movie, they just drive through the gate. That that wouldn't have been. <laughs> but this is this is 1959 and it's Hitchcock, they couldn't open the gate. So and it gets them to run around um through the forest, and then there's this reveal scene that they are now on top of Mount Rushmore, and it's still an incredible moment because you're like oh shit they have nowhere to go you know or it's already set up really well like the geography really well you know how big these things are because you've already seen it in the movie um and so you know the scale and then to have them kind of go at the top look down and go "Uh uh-oh um is such a great reveal moment again it goes back to the blocking it goes back to the pacing it goes back to the editing um and the music because that music sting of when it happens is is glorious um, and again, it's just a personality in spades and it's, yeah, it's such a great moment. And you're like, oh no, how are they going to get out? They gonna... Oh, they're climbing down. Yikes. Um, and I hate heights. <laughs> so I was just getting very much anxiety every single every time I watch it. I'm like going, don't climb. Oh my God, they're climbing down. <laughs> do you have vertigo of your own, Lindsay? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> hey, I, I do too. I, I don't. I, I notoriously do not get on roller coasters myself, so I, I I completely feel you on that. So that that scene, again, even though it's a fifties movie, it plays on a bit of some some lifelong fears I've had for sure. Yo, yes, no, it's like um, you mentioned James Cameron before, how because he's a master of geography, like he will set up a scene. Oh yeah, and then he will let you just go in it, and you know you don't need to know you already know where you are. Um, and Hitchcock does that very similar thing, like he set up something really really well. You know the geography. And so you know that the only way they can only now it's they can only go down. And yeah, it's just yeah. it's just master filmmaking. I mean, you're just watching it going, you make it look easy. And then this movie would not have been easy. The logistics, the matte paintings, the sets they had to build. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that the actors didn't necessarily know what was happening when they were acting in it. It's not an easy making a movie is never easy. Hitchcock always never made it easy. And but it looks easy when you're watching it. You're like, I could do that. No, no, I could, I could not. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally, totally. No, he. Um, I mean, we we revere the the the, the quote unquote great filmmakers because you know it's like, how did you, how did you come up with that? You know, yeah. like how how did you like what alien planet did you come from and whose body did you take uh, exactly. to, yeah. to to make to make movies better than a human could? You mm. know. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's what separates a great movie from a great movie, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and again, I'm not the type of film fan who needs every movie to be just outstanding, magnificent stuff. Mm. But when you come across something like this, that and kiss, kiss, bang, bang movies that they're just pure freaking craft. Like there's really no accidents. No, I think um, in either of these movies, I think these movies really do pair really well for that wrong man inclination you mentioned, but mm. because, you know, this North Northwest represents the end of an era for one of our premier talents. Yes. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang represents a new beginning. Yes. For one of our premier talents. And I think they, they that, um, I think they kind of connect very well with one another. 
Also comparing just Robert Downey Jr. and Cary Grant has been fascinating because I know we sort of said, oh, it's it's George Clooney. And that would have been a too easy kind of pairing because they generally just look like each other. Um, and they're both charming. But Robbie Downey Jr. has this very messy charm about him. Like you just want to give him a hug to make sure he's okay because it's that's kind yeah. of the characters he plays. That's his persona. He's not always completely, even as Iron Man is never completely in control of what's happening. He's always trying to figure things out on the fly. And whenever he tries to control things, he creates Ultron. He, he does. He, he does. He, he, you know, he, he literally, you know, like he, it goes wrong. <laughs> it goes horribly wrong and endangers the universe. And yeah, yeah no, I, I, I didn't think about that, but you're totally right. Totally right. Yeah. So he's kind of this fascinating leading man. And he is kind of one of the last great movie stars, I think, Robert Downey Jr. Um, and he's got this really interesting persona where there's Cary Grant is kind of the ultimate movie star and even when he doesn't necessarily understand what's happening or he's on the back foot he's still got his charm to rely on and you know that's going to carry him through which it does I mean he until he gets to the house his he survived purely on charm I mean this is um (laughs) and the fact that he can drive really well drunk um has kept him alive (laughs) up to this point um, that I mean, is when he leaves his <laughs> hospital room, like he runs into that woman who's like, wait, stop, wait, yeah. wait, stop, you know, like that, that's his charm getting him by, you know, yeah. if, it, if he had run into, you know, a Leo G, a Leo G. Carroll, any of his men, you know, he would be screwed. And, yes. and again, another, another mechanism that he didn't see beforehand. But again, the moment he finally has experienced. I love that whole bit because the the moment he finally gets the volition to get one over his his captors, both mm. Van Dams and Leo G. Carroll's. I keep forgetting yeah. his name. Oh, the, me the too. Professor, that's his name. They're always, they're always um, Mason and Landau to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I'm, I'm bad with character names. Sorry. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, no, it, totally, no. I, I, he, he, he. Both, both actors really do sell the. Hey, I'm in over my head, even though I'm trying to like make sense of what's going on, and, and there's a. There, there's a bit of a we see ourselves in those in these people you know they're movie stars Robert Downey Jr you know he he's one of the the biggest names ever and it's going yes. to be that way forever but um again I, I and I think I think part of what fuels him to play Harry so differently from any of his other performances mm. um is that you know hey I'm swinging for the fences I'm working with Shane Black you know he's he it's again just masters of of the craft and uh and yeah, and I uh, just absolutely love these movies. No, it was a really great pairing because I think they kind of fit together really well in kind of unexpected ways, which is kind of my favorite kind of pairings. I mean, yes, wrong uh, mistaken identity, wrong man is definitely kind of drives them. But then you sort of look at, wait, but these are two very specific kind of leading men and very different. I mean, I love how, yeah, uh, Carrie Grant is all bluster and charm and Harry's an idiot. Um, I like the relationships between their each kind of romantic kind of, um, you know, Michelle uh, Monaghan and Eva Marie Saint. I love um, it just these got these character actors for days. It's just, yeah, it's just this kind of thing where you're just watching it. It's great popcorn movie, but it's really done really well. And that's that action you talked about when you're watching an action movie and it's just working and it's all about the the craft of the thing, um, which is, yeah, I don't need all my movies to be um, genius, which, um, but when you do, as you said, as you stumble across one, you're like, oh, this is why I love movies. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's kind of wonderful. This has been a wonderful double. <laughs> 
Thank you. No, and thank you again for having me on. Um, I, um, again, uh, feel free to uh, <laughs> invite me back any other oh. time. Uh, I've had a blast today, uh, Lindsay, truly. No, thank you for coming on. I've been wanting to talk to you because I just enjoy your letterbox a lot. And um, I've been thinking it'll be a cool conversation to talk movies with them. And it has been absolutely that. Thank you so much for coming on and um, with this double. It has been absolutely um, incredible. Um, before we go, um, please tell people where they can follow you online, especially your Twitter and your letterbox. Yes. Um, so I am on Twitter. It's uh, P-R-E-S-T-O-M-I-T. Mm -hmm. And uh, my letterbox is P-R-E-S-T-O uh, underscore M-I-T-C-H uh, on, uh, on uh, letterbox. So, yeah. Yeah, no, these are great follows. So please, please follow them. They're always just happy and joyful and like, I'm watching movies. And this is a very you double because you've got like the modern action with the classic and that feels very, very you. Um, and yes, <laughs> no, I definitely would love to have you back on to Shakanol because this has been an absolute blast. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um yeah, this has been absolutely great. And uh, details. If you want to follow Schlucken or on Twitter and Instagram, Schlucken or one. And um, I guess if you want to follow me, it's Reading Geek on Twitter. And I'm also Reading Geek on uh, Letterboxd as well. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we will be back with another double feature next time. Thank you so much, Preston, for coming on. This was an absolute blast. And I cannot wait to have you back. All right, cool. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.